Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Less than a half hour drive from where I'm sitting recording this, there's an inlet formed by a gap in the coastal barrier islands along Florida's Atlantic coast, a gap through which the intercoastal waterway opens up to the Atlantic Ocean. It's a place of very strong tidal currents in and out several times a day. Because of the strong tidal flows, it's an area that's popular with surfers and fishermen, as well as typical beachgoers. But sometimes it can be a bit hazardous as well, precisely because of the strong currents and waves and sudden changes of depth. Still, it's a very pleasant stretch of beach around that inlet, and as such, it's very popular with both tourists and locals, and it's often full of people doing all the usual things that people do at the beach. As one of the relatively few Floridians who actually knows a fair amount of Florida history, when I'm at this particular spot, I can't help but wonder how many of these people have the slightest clue that a mass execution took place here back in the 16th century. And how many of those people have the slightest clue that this mass execution was in many ways the foundation, the true foundation of Spanish Florida, and that these mass murders were not, as is so often the case in early colonial history, instances of Europeans slaughtering natives, but instead these massacres were actually perpetrated against members of another white tribe. When people think of Florida today, they generally think of Disney World, elderly retired people, tourists and tourist traps, Florida Man, the occasional hurricane, and maybe the leftover flavor of those cocaine cowboy days, which actually are around three decades past. To the modern-day mind, the negatives of Florida consist largely of brutal heat and humidity in the summer, hurricanes, biting and stinging insects, venomous native snakes and invasive giant pythons, traffic jams and car crashes, shark and alligator attacks, the occasional mass shooter or serial killer, and, of course, the ever-present danger of Florida Man 
doing something that's just batshit crazy. But little do most people today, including most Florida residents, even suspect that for hundreds of years, this sandy peninsula that cordons off the Gulf of Mexico from the rest of the Atlantic Ocean was a blood-soaked imperial battleground, simultaneously a backwater outpost and yet a fiercely contested frontier borderland between multiple shifting power centers over the centuries. At various times, the Spanish, French, and British empires all vied for control and influence over this area, which is really nothing more than a huge, largely resource-poor sandbar. And during that period, these empires sometimes fought with and sometimes allied with a diverse variety of native peoples as well. And then, of course, the empire that was to become the most powerful of them all in history so far, the United States would eventually get into the fray as well, and eventually claim Florida for its own. A while back, in episodes that are now among the vintage DHP episodes that can only be accessed by Scholar Warrior supporters of the show, I covered some of the story of America's takeover of Florida from the early 19th century, in the form of the First Seminole War, in which the U.S. government forcibly took over legal sovereignty of Florida from Spain, and the Second Seminole War, in which the U.S. government attempted to ethnically cleanse the territory of the Seminole. If you've heard these episodes, you're already at least somewhat familiar with some of the battles and massacres that characterized Florida's violent history before the 20th century. But in this episode, we're going to take you back to Florida's origin as a European object of conquest and desire. As La Florida and show that the drama and brutality was already rolling along pretty well all the way back in the 16th century, culminating in two cold-blooded massacres that established Spanish sovereignty over the territory. And again, we're not talking about massacres of natives by whites in this particular instance, but instead of a massacre by one white tribe against another. Both of these white tribes were attempting to gain a foothold in a peninsula that at the time was widely considered to hold little intrinsic worth other than its location relative to other, much more valuable colonies. This is CJ, your Renaissance man for the New Dark Age, and this is the Dangerous History Podcast, Place of the Slaughter.
special announcement. This is something I was not expecting to happen, but then it turned out that I could make it. I'm going to be once again at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Festival in Michigan in June. It's going to be my third time going. And initially, I thought I was going to miss it this year because my annual study abroad trip to Ireland that I run where I work, in previous years, it's taken place in early May. And this year, the college was going to make us do it in mid to late June, and it would have conflicted with the fest. And so originally, I did not expect to be going to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest this summer because I was going to be in Ireland. But then for a variety of reasons, the trip fell through because it didn't get enough students signed up to go on the trip. And so it wasn't financially viable. So the trip got canceled and I was able to go to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest after all. And so I'm going to be speaking there. I believe if I remember right, I'm going to be speaking there Saturday at noon. And the fest this year is scheduled to run from Thursday, June 20th through Monday, June 24th. So I'll be, if I'm remembering right, speaking there on Saturday, which would be the 22nd, on a still-as-yet-to-be-determined topic. And here is my good buddy Lou, who will also be at the fest with a little commercial. It is your right, your duty, and your privilege to attend the 7th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest held at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo, from Thursday, June 20th to Monday, June 24th. This is the most important Liberty Fest of our lifetimes. This is both an adult and family-friendly camping event. There will be all sorts of outdoor activities, games, discussions, and bacon. Lots of bacon. Scheduled speakers will include C.J. Kilmer of the Dangerous History Podcast and Brett Vinat from School Sucks. Make sure your voice is heard by rounding up your friends and family and getting them registered today at mplfest.org. That's Mike, Papa, Lima, Fest.org. Dogs welcome, longer leashes recommended, and a vote for Anarchon is really a vote for Agorafest. Now let's step back a little bit and cover an overview of Spanish involvement in the territory that came to be known as Florida. And of course, we have to start with Ponce de Leon's quote-unquote discovery of Florida and what caused that to come about. And I just want to say at the outset here that almost everything that is commonly believed about Florida and its history is at least partially, and oftentimes entirely, bullshit. There's actually a tourist attraction in St. Augustine called the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park, which, despite its name giving it seeming pretensions and veneer of realism and even serious scholarliness, is a tourist attraction that's pretty much entirely fabricated BS. The cheesy neon sign at the front of it should be a dead giveaway, but of course not everybody picks up on those things. This tourist attraction claims that Ponce de Leon landed at St. Augustine in 1513 while looking for the Fountain of Youth. And none of that statement is true. Ponce never came anywhere near the site of St. Augustine, and he was not looking for, and of course he never found, the Fountain of Youth. No contemporary sources related to Ponce de Leon mention him looking for the Fountain of Youth at all. In fact, the person who's most responsible for attaching Ponce de Leon's name to the idea of the Fountain of Youth in the popular mind is actually none other than 19th century author Washington Irving, who is the author of things like The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. 
And the Fountain of Youth has no more factuality to it than either of those two stories. If anything, it might even have less. And these sorts of tourist traps, like this quote-unquote archaeological park, as well as various types of tourism propaganda, often imply that Ponce landed at the site of the city of St. Augustine. And sometimes they almost imply that he founded the town. The reality is that St. Augustine, which was the first Spanish town in Florida, and is the oldest continuously occupied European-founded settlement in territory that later became the mainland United States, St. Augustine was actually founded in 1565, which is 41 years after Ponce de Leon died. And Ponce never set foot on the site of the city. In fact, he never made it that far north along Florida's Atlantic coast. Also, even assuming an old-fashioned Eurocentric perspective in which we don't really credit the natives for quote-unquote discovering anything in America, Ponce de Leon still didn't really discover Florida. More than a few Europeans had already visited Florida before him. Giovanni Cabotto, a.k.a. John Cabot, an Italian, may have been the first European to actually see Florida. And another possibility for that honor is Gaspar Corte Real, a Portuguese explorer. And there are several European maps authenticated to have been made before Ponce's first voyage to Florida in 1513 that have fairly accurate depictions of Florida. Also, there's ample evidence that Spaniards had been coming to Florida on slave-catching raids for years before Ponce's first voyage to Florida. And among many other pieces of evidence for this, Ponce's first expedition to Florida actually encountered an Indian who spoke Spanish. So let's tell the whole story, the real story, of the Spanish conquest of La Florida. And to set the stage, we have to really start the story at least as early as 1492. And not just because of the Columbus voyage, but also because in 1492, Spain completed what's known to history as the Reconquista, which meant retaking the Iberian Peninsula from the Islamic people from North Africa known as the Moors, who had actually ruled most of the Iberian Peninsula for centuries. In 1492, Spain completed the Reconquista by retaking the last Moorish stronghold down in Grenada in southern Spain. And it's not coincidental that this coincides with Spain getting involved in overseas imperialism. These two things go together and are intimately related on a number of levels. So, for example, the completion of the Reconquista meant that Spain now had a bunch of unemployed or at least underemployed military men, veterans of fighting against the Moors, who were used to fighting against the other in the name of ethnic and religious animosity, and who'd been fighting that kind of fight for many generations. And it just so happened that right as the fight against the Moors was wrapping up, Spain got involved in overseas imperialism, because, of course, 1492 happened to also be the year of Christopher Columbus's first voyage, as a result of which Spain quickly began to conquer and occupy the islands of Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Jamaica, and before long were making significant incursions into the mainland of North, Central, and South America. So in a way, the finishing of the Reconquista provided both the opportunity as well as some of the means and motivation 
for overseas imperialism because it meant Spain was no longer diverting huge amounts of its wealth and resources to fighting enemies in their own front yard. So all of that money and resources were freed up to be devoted elsewhere. And like I said, it also meant that in Spain, you had large numbers of guys who for generations had been fighting the Reconquista. And they now kind of had nothing to do for the time being. And so, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to go basically do the same thing they had been doing close to home in the Iberian Peninsula and just do it somewhere else, fighting against people who were ethnically and religiously other and who could easily be dehumanized to the point where it legitimized fighting them. And a lot of the way that Spain organized the conquest of the New World mirrored how they had organized the Reconquista. And this was a transitional time period in European history, what's sometimes referred to as early modern, in which you still have some vestiges of the medieval era in terms of organization of of governments and states and authority and that sort of thing. And yet you're also starting to come into the modern era in a lot of ways. And 16th century Spanish imperial practices and methodologies reflected this transitional period. They mixed medieval and modern methods of conquest and governance. Chronic fiscal problems caused the Spanish crown to often carry out conquests through contractors who would usually hold the title of adelantado. An adelantado was entitled to authority in and revenue from a given territory, provided he could successfully take it over and hold it. Basically, this title had the effect of adding royal legitimacy and backing to what was in practical terms just kind of might makes right. And it was a way for the Spanish crown to entice wealthy, powerful men to actually shoulder the expense and risk of conquest to take over a territory for the Spanish government. And this practice had actually begun during the Reconquista. It was often used to conquer a new piece of Iberia back from the Moors. And they just transposed the same methods onto their conquest of the New World when they got involved with that. Thus, the conquistadors, including Columbus and Ponce de Leon, as well as virtually all the other famous ones, were really imperial entrepreneurs contractors who took on much of the risks and expenses of conquest in the hope of getting fabulous rewards, if they could succeed. Interestingly, the two most famous New World conquistadors, Hernando Cortes and Francisco Pizarro, both began their major conquests without the title of Adelantado. But both were able to eventually receive that title once they proved successful. This is how Florida historian Eugene Lyon describes the role of Adelantado and his duties in his book, The Enterprise of Florida, Pedro Menendez and the Spanish Conquest of 1565 to 1568. Quote, In return for their license and privileges, the Adelantados bore the essential burden of the cost and risk of their conquest. As the private instruments of their sovereign's will, they were required to agree to carry out royal policies of fortification for defense, the implementing of Castilian municipal institutions in desired areas, and the fair treatment of the Indians. Final sovereignty over its territories had not been surrendered by the crown to its designated representative. 
The history of the royal disputes with Columbus and later conquerors demonstrates that the Spanish rulers always guarded their prerogatives with jealous zeal. The Adelantados might receive enduring title to lands and lasting privileges, but their control over the government of the lands they had conquered was limited. Within one or two lifetimes, the monarch would recapture the offices of governor and captain general. During the life of the agreement, however, effective civil and military authority was in the hands of the Adelantado. All the reciprocal arrangements between the Castilian monarchs and their Adelantados were formalized in their Asientos y Capitulaciones. By the way, side note, I am doing my best in this episode to correctly pronounce names and terms that are Spanish or French or whatever. But I ask your forgiveness and indulgence if I butcher any of them, but I am making an honest effort to get them all correct. Back to Eugene Lyon. Talking about these asientos, quote, A series of negotiated contracts. An examination of a number of these accords discloses that they were, in the main, very similar. By the middle of the 16th century, they had become largely standardized. The asientos are therefore good indices of abiding aims and purposes of crown and contractors alike. In every case, the twofold mission of the conquest, pacification and settlement, was impressed upon the contractor. He would receive the titles and properties promised and could enjoy the short-run incomes, exemptions, and more enduring privileges if he complied with his obligation to fortify, populate, and provide an atmosphere in which evangelization of the natives could go forward. On both sides of the contract, benefit as well as obligation, the promises and requirements were most specific. End quote. So you have these asientos, essentially contracts, between the monarch and an adelantado, laying out ahead of time what the adelantado's duties are and then what he's supposed to receive in return for doing those duties. Which brings us to Juan Ponce de Leon, who was the first Spaniard of several, as we'll see, to get the Adelantado to explore and colonize the territory that would get the name La Florida. Juan Ponce de Leon was, like many who would become known as conquistadors and wannabe conquistadors of this time period, from a Spanish family that was of noble lineage, but that was financially not doing great as of the late 15th, early 16th century. As a young man in his late teens, he had actually served in the Spanish military during the final phases of the Reconquista. Like a lot of men of military background who had cut their teeth during the Reconquista, Ponce would find Spanish overseas imperialism to be the perfect make-work program for someone of his background once the Moors were booted out of the Iberian Peninsula. And it was a make-work program that offered the possibility of giant riches if one were truly successful. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity for someone like Ponce, at least until Florida killed him. Ponce is a little less famous than some of the other conquistadors, such as Cortes or Pizarro, mostly because the territories that he claimed for Spain, which were Puerto Rico and Florida, were of relatively little value in comparison to Mexico, Peru, and so forth. And also there's the fact that he wasn't very good at the conquering part of being a conquistador, at least in Florida. He was a little bit more successful in Puerto Rico. 
But in fact, in 1493, the year following the end of the Reconquista in Spain, Ponce was actually part of the crew of Columbus's second voyage to the New World. In the early 1500s, he was involved in the exploration and conquest of several Caribbean islands for Spain, including most notably Puerto Rico. During that time, he was involved with several noteworthy massacres of the native Taino people of the area. But these exploits did not get him the fame and fortune that he truly craved, so he quickly began looking for other people and places to take over on behalf of the Spanish crown, and also for the purposes of drastically upping his own wealth and power. On February 23, 1512, the King of Spain granted Ponce a charter, which in the Spanish imperial lingo was known as an asiento to discover and govern the island of Bimini, which was a huge, turned out to be basically mythical, island that the Spanish believed lay to the north of Cuba. This asiento, as was standard procedure in these sorts of things, laid out very meticulously what Ponce's duties and goals were supposed to be with this expedition, and what he would get in return if he carried it out successfully. By the way, nowhere in this asiento is the Fountain of Youth mentioned at all, or even implied. Ponce would hold the title of Adelantado in the asientos for both of his attempted expeditions to Florida, and in both cases, if he were successful, he'd become governor for life and get all sorts of rewards and titles, but he had to finance these expeditions out of his own personal funds. So in March of 1513, he set out with three ships from Puerto Rico. And on April 2nd of 1513, he reached not the island of Bimini, which, at least as the Spanish conceived of it, didn't really exist, although eventually there would be a small island in the Caribbean called Bimini. But in fact, what Ponce reached was what we have called Florida ever since. There's a persistent legend that he named the land that he found La Florida when he arrived in April of 1513 because there were lots of flowers blooming everywhere. But this is probably just marketing made up by people later, part of the general fog of misleading BS that usually tends to shroud all information about Florida past and present. The reality is, as author T.D. Allman points out, that Florida isn't exactly full of flowers. Instead, plant life is mostly just lots of green. And much of the bright flowers you might find in modern-day Florida are imports that only arrived after Ponce's expeditions. As T.D. Allman puts it in his book, Finding Florida, the True History of the Sunshine State, quote, Leafiness not floweriness, is the hallmark of Florida's vegetation. End quote. In fact, like I kind of already said, much of the flowers that one would associate with modern Florida, including even the fabled orange blossom, are actually exotic plant species, or invasives, depending on your point of view and how much damage a particular plant does to the environment. These are things brought in from elsewhere in the four and a half centuries since first European contact with Florida. Which is not to say there were no flowers indigenous to Florida, but just that the image that a lot of people have had 
throughout the centuries of Florida, the image in their head of a landscape that looks like some sort of gaudy, many-colored Hawaiian shirt is at best exaggerated even today, and certainly was even more so exaggerated in the early 1500s. But hey, the idea that Florida is some sort of tropical Eden has long been a favorite myth of people looking to entice visitors and movers and so forth, so why let facts get in the way of a good story? Back then, though, ever since Ponce de Leon, when the Spanish would refer to La Florida, they typically meant, at least until the late 18th century, most of what is today the southeastern U.S., the asientos that Ponce de Leon had and that subsequent Spanish conquistadors and wannabes over the next 50 years were granted to try to colonize La Florida usually defined a very, very expansive territory. And this is a common thing in early colonial American history, not just in regards to Spanish colonization, for the original boundaries of a lot of early colonies to be enormous and also pretty vague. The same is true, for example, of the original English meaning of the territory named Virginia. Virginia was originally defined and thought of as being much, much bigger than today's state of Virginia, or even the state of Virginia as it was before the Civil War when it still included West Virginia. But then what ends up happening is that these colonies, they often start out defined very, very expansively and vaguely, but over time... The colonies get better defined, their borders get much more modest in size, and the colony kind of shrinks as others around it are established and get occupied and populated. So, for example, once the British got established in other places around Virginia, first in Carolina, later in Georgia, and then the French started colonizing the area around New Orleans and up the Mississippi Valley, then the boundaries of... La Florida, in this case, started to gradually shrink over the centuries towards the dimensions we think of today. People used to think that Ponce de Leon hit Florida somewhere around the present-day city of St. Augustine, or even possibly a little north of that. And a lot of people, honestly, whose historical knowledge is based on nothing but popular history and tourism propaganda still might think this. But it's generally believed by real experts that Ponce first landed much further south, most likely down by Melbourne Beach, which is about 130 miles south of St. Augustine down Florida's Atlantic coast, and that Ponce never hit as far north on the Atlantic coast as the present-day city of St. Augustine. At his initial landing, Ponce's group seems to not have encountered any natives, because there's no record of it in their documents, and it seems certain that they would have noted it in some way if they had encountered somebody. Ponce, like most Spanish conquistadors, took along some priests to try to convert the natives to the Catholic faith, and at the time, the Spanish had a rule that they offered conversion to the natives three times, and that any native who refused conversion after being offered it three times could legally be enslaved at that point for rejecting the good word. So there were sort of like two sides to bringing along priests for this missionary mission. On the one hand, okay, you spread your faith, and that's something the Spanish government wants you to do, and that serves strategic interests, because if you get natives converted, then they'll be on your side if any Protestant Europeans show up in the neighborhood. But it's also nice from the perspective of the conquistadors, because if the natives won't convert after a certain point, you can enslave them. 
Ponce's expedition sailed down around the southern tip of the peninsula of Florida and then also explored the southwestern Gulf Coast a little bit and did start to make some contact with Florida's indigenous people. But after a major attack by Calusa Indians in war canoes, Ponce decided he was going to bail. But during his sailing around part of the Florida coast, he is generally credited with the first European to really discover the Gulf Stream at least to leave a record of having done so. And he reached Biscayne Bay down around Miami and did go down around the Florida Keys up to Sanibel. And around Sanibel is where it's believed Ponce got into that fight with the Calusa that caused him to retreat. All of the early contact with the original native inhabitants of Florida was very quickly very hostile. And again, it's probably due to the fact that other Spaniards had already been coming on slave raiding expeditions to the Florida coast for years. So Ponce was unable to make any headway in terms of converting them or making any sort of overtures to them. And in fact, his expedition was completely unable to do anything like starting a town or building a fort or anything like that. However, Ponce de Leon does have the honor of being the first white man known to have fired a gun at a native Floridian on the historical record. So there's that. There's mention in a primary source of him taking a shot at a native who was trying to steal something. And um, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't recall if the native, if he missed or, or if he killed the native, I'm not certain. But regardless of whether he missed or not, he's the first white man that we know of on the record shooting at a native Floridian. After his failed expedition, Ponce de Leon still wanted the Spanish crown to back him on future attempts to colonize Florida, so he sent the Spanish king 5,000 gold pesos, which was kind of misleading because they did not and could not, geologically speaking, have come from Florida. Instead, they came from his own stash. Apparently, it was an effort to mislead the king and give him the impression that Florida had a lot more wealth potential than it really did. And this meant that having paid for the expedition out of his own pocket, he was now paying out of his own pocket just to keep the illusion or the hope alive that Florida would be profitable so that the Spanish government would continue to authorize his efforts, even though they weren't really funding him. As T.D. Allman writes, quote, His expedition had taught Ponce de Leon what many others would refuse to learn. Florida was no place to get rich quick. To the contrary, it was a sinkhole of wealth. End quote. In fact, Ponce himself never really got a chance to truly learn that lesson either. He made a second expedition to Florida in 1521, again entirely on his own dime. And with a few hundred people and 50 horses jammed into two ships, he landed on Florida's Gulf Coast in the southwestern part of the peninsula, in the same area where his group had been so strongly attacked during his first expedition. And again, they pretty much immediately came under attack by the badass Calusa Indians. In the fight, Ponce took a Calusa arrow to the thigh, and his expedition quickly got the hell out of Dodge, retreated back to Cuba, where Ponce died of his wound. Some sources say the arrow he was hit with may have been poisoned, but probably it's more likely he was just the victim of good old-fashioned infection. Over the next four decades, various Spanish explorers, conquistadors, and even clergymen would make various attempts to try to establish a real, permanent Spanish presence on La Florida. 
and during that time, all would fail. So let's do a brief overview of some of those ill-fated Spanish incursions. In 1528, Panfilo de Narvaez landed near Tampa Bay. He was the big, ugly, red-headed, screw-up conquistador who had been sent in 1521 to arrest Hernando Cortez in Mexico for going off the reservation and exceeding any of his authority. Narvaez had completely failed in that attempt and had lost an eye and been taken prisoner by Cortez's men. Now he's going to try and succeed in conquering Florida. Historian Michael Gannon writes of Narvaez, quote, Carlos V had conferred on him the lofty titles of Adelantado, governor and captain general, but no mortal could confer on him common good sense. End quote. On April 14th, he was dropped off in Tampa Bay along with 300 men and 40 horses. He then stupidly ordered his ships, which carried most of the expedition's supplies, to sail northward, supposedly to rendezvous with his contingent at a harbor far to the north, which of course wasn't really known or defined. And Narvaez's group was going to march north to meet these ships. Part of why he made this stupid plan was that he wanted to look for gold, which, of course, there is no gold in Florida. Long story short, the expedition ended in disaster. After marching from Tampa up into the Panhandle looking for non-existent gold and getting lost and completely losing touch with their ships in the process, they ultimately decided to build new ships to sail back to Mexico. They did this and set off, but were shipwrecked off the coast of Texas, and most of the men, including Narvaez himself, died in this disaster. The survivors ultimately walked in a very slow and roundabout way, all the way to Mexico City. Four of the 300 who had been dropped off with Narvaez ultimately made it to Mexico City in 1536, eight years after setting off on the Narvaez expedition. Eleven years later, in 1539, eleven years after the Narvaez expedition set out, and just three years after the survivors of that expedition made it to Mexico City, Hernando de Soto came to Florida's Gulf Coast, probably initially landing around Tampa, and explored much of what would become the southeastern United States over the course of the next four years. Which, remember, this entire region was referred to as all being part of La Florida by the Spanish. De Soto would ultimately also fail to establish a Spanish colony in Florida. He had previously assisted in Pizarro's conquest of the Inca in South America, so on paper he seemed to be competent and qualified for this job. And not only was he qualified, he was very well outfitted and equipped. His expedition began with nine ships and more than 600 men. T.D. Allman notes that, by contrast, the Mayflower had just one ship with 101 people on it, and it succeeded in establishing a lasting colony. But as Allman puts it, quote, In Florida, conquistadors who had won pitched battles in the oxygen-starved mountains of South America went mad and wandered madly before dying of fever. De Soto was the first of the Protean super-rich who, having triumphed elsewhere, ruin themselves in Florida, end quote. Like I said, DeSoto 
first landed in Florida, probably at Tampa in 1539. And his men wandered around exploring the southeastern part of what would become the United States. And in May of 1542, DeSoto himself would die of an unknown disease by a river that may possibly have been the Mississippi. Though he's often credited with doing so, it's at least highly questionable whether or not DeSoto actually, quote-unquote, discovered the Mississippi River. No one actually made that claim about him until the 19th century. In the 19th and 20th century, a lot of myth, or at the very least extremely murky and unverifiable history about DeSoto's wanderings in the American Southeast were seized upon by government and business interests who wanted to promote tourism in the area and to make parks and monuments and so forth. Perhaps it's somewhat appropriate and fitting that DeSoto died of disease, given the fact that the most significant thing his expedition really did was to serve as the Johnny Appleseed of deadly germs in the southeastern quadrant of North America. Historian Michael Gannon describes this as follows, quote, The most significant practical result of what may be called that extended armed raid, meaning DeSoto's expedition, was the damage inflicted on the southeastern native populations. Dozens of chiefdoms, overstressed and humiliated by DeSoto, went into decline or collapsed. And in the wake of the Entrada, thousands of native people lay dead and dying not from the sword, but from the introduction of old-world pathogens against which the Aborigines had no acquired immunities. Smallpox, measles, and typhoid fever, among others. That microbial invasion had begun many years before with the first slavers, or with the crews of Juan Ponce de Leon, but DeSoto's men unwittingly reinforced it on their long, doubly tragic death march through the interior of La Florida. End quote. The only other really significant thing we can say that DeSoto really did was to start the invasive wild hog problem in the southeastern part of North America. He brought 700 pigs with him, and many, of course, ended up getting loose or being set loose and went feral and became the first wild hogs in what would become the southeastern United States. In 1549, a decade after DeSoto's expedition set out, a Spanish priest named Father Luis Cancer de Barbastro came to Florida to try to deal peacefully with the natives of La Florida. He asked to be brought in an unarmed ship and with no weapons or bodyguards to accompany him to a place in Florida where he hoped the natives had not yet been exposed to the Spanish in any way, hoping that he'd be able to find some natives who would be kind of like a blank slate, who wouldn't already have pre-existing hostility and hatred towards the Spaniards. But for whatever reason, whether just laziness, malice, incompetence, ignorance, who knows, the ship that was carrying Father Cancer brought him to Tampa Bay the exact same place where Narvaez and DeSoto had landed and gotten into hostilities with the natives. Even so, Father Cancer initially had some positive-seeming encounters with the natives in his sojourns ashore, but eventually things went south pretty badly, and some of his companions who were with him on this mission began to disappear, and they seem to probably have been murdered or something like that. And when Father Cancer tried to find out what had happened to them, a group of natives clubbed him to death. 
Some sources indicate that he was actually praying on the beach when this beating to death incident happened. Others that he was actually still in the water in the process of wading ashore. So even the guy who comes at least trying to do the Spanish takeover and conversion process in a nonviolent fashion ends up brutally beaten to death. And this story kind of reminds me a bit of the death of John Allen Chow, the American missionary who was trying to spread the good word of Christianity when he was killed by hostile natives on a remote island in India, despite having been warned to stay away from the place and that these natives were super duper aggressive and dangerous. Some of you may recall this story. As I'm recording this, it's 2019, and I'm pretty sure it was during 2018 that this incident happened. A decade after Father Cancer's attempt, another Spanish conquistador, Don Tristan de Luna y Ariano, made an expedition from Mexico to Florida. His fleet reached Pensacola in August of 1559, and it was another quite large expedition, 13 ships, 500 soldiers, and 1,000 civilians, 240 horses, and all sorts of supplies to try to begin to build a colonial settlement. So, the largest Spanish attempt on Florida so far. What ended up happening? Well, disaster, actually. A hurricane apparently clobbered them real good very soon after they arrived, and starvation and disease followed, and the survivors soon retreated back to Mexico. And about the only thing we can say about De Luna is that he ended up being the first of the many unsuccessful would-be conquerors of Florida to at least personally survive the experience. After this long list of failures and disasters and wasted lives and resources, the Spanish government began seriously wondering whether or not Florida was even worth all the trouble, given that every attempt at conquest or settlement, or even just proselytizing the natives, so far had ended in disaster, and like I said, just complete waste of all these lives and resources and wealth. And so the Spanish government began basically doing a study and looking into all these failures and trying to really understand, based on what they now knew of Florida and its resource potential, was it even worth the trouble? And one of the people whose opinion the Crown sought out on this matter was a Spanish naval officer, explorer, and one of these contractor imperial entrepreneur types named Pedro Menendez de Avales. And he's going to play the starring role in the rest of our story. Historian Michael Gannon describes the result of this Spanish government inquiry, again, some of which was influenced by what Menendez had to say. He describes the conclusions in the following terms, quote, That La Florida's shoreline was too low and sandy, her countryside too poor in resources, and her harbors too barred and shallow to permit practical settlement. For that reason, the report concluded, there was no cause to fear that the French would establish themselves there or attempt to take possession, end quote. And in the immediate aftermath of this, and based on this report, the Spanish government decided not only that there was no threat of French settlement, because Florida was too harsh of an environment and too low on resources, but they went even further, and in an order dated September 23rd, 1561, the King of Spain actually banned any further Spanish attempts to colonize Florida. So not just saying that they won't back any more of these things in any way, but flat out banned them. Florida is simply a worthless shithole with super hostile natives and tons of natural disasters, hurricanes, 
and diseases. It's a worthless sandbar. We shouldn't waste any more resources on it. And clearly the French won't either because it's clearly such a shithole. Then, cue the French. For most of the 16th century, Spain was actually having even more conflict with France than it was with England, even though we often think of both France and Spain as being kind of mutual chronic enemies of England. And then because of that, we sort of assume that France and Spain tend to be allied or at the very least benevolently neutral toward each other through, you know, the entire early modern era, say 16th through 18th century. This is really more true of the latter part of that period from, say, the very late 16th century kind of Spanish Armada time frame through the 17th and 18th century and into the 19th. In fact, for the first three quarters of the 16th century, the Spanish and French were chronic enemies and rivals. This had mostly to do with dynastic rivalries between the Spanish rulers, who at the time were the House of Habsburg, the same dynasty that ruled the Austrian Empire, and the French rulers, who at the time were a dynasty called the Valois. In fact, France and Spain fought a total of seven distinct wars with each other from 1494 to 1559, and a lot of it had to do with control of various territories in Italy, Italy being politically fragmented into many different jurisdictions at the time, some of which were ruled by outside powers. These wars are often referred to in history as the Habsburg-Valois Wars, or sometimes just the Italian Wars, because so much of the conflict took place in and around Italy, and because a big part of what was at stake in these wars was control of various Italian territories. Also, these conflicts were kind of a classic balance of power situation, wherein the Habsburgs were really dominant at the time, controlling both Austria and Spain, which meant that much of Central Europe, as well as Spain and Spain's growing overseas empire, were all controlled by members of one royal house. And so, as usually happens whenever one entity, be it a royal house or one particular government or one particular empire, is trying to, or appears to be trying to just sort of take over everything, Inevitably, a coalition of powers, maybe all of whom would have a hard time on their own standing up to this hegemon or wannabe hegemon, um, they all band together, a bunch of kind of middle and lightweight powers, and collectively they're able to check and push back. That just sort of naturally happens in the history of war and diplomacy over centuries, really. It's just sort of something that naturally tends to occur. And so what was happening in the 16th century was a coalition of powers led by France and containing shifting combinations of allies, including at various points in the conflict, the English, the Dutch, and even GASP, the Ottoman Empire. This shifting coalition of allies began to check and challenge the Habsburgs. So the last of this series of Habsburg-Velois wars ended in 1559, and there was supposedly peace in Europe between France and Spain. But, as we'll see, that didn't always mean there was peace out on the imperial frontiers overseas. At the peace conference that ended this particular war in 1559, there was verbal agreement that this peace would hold everywhere 
that was north of the Tropic of Cancer and east of the Azores. So this implied that in the area that was both west of the Azores and south of the Tropic of Cancer, which in practice basically meant the Caribbean, there wouldn't really be peace between the European powers who were present there. The phrase commonly used to describe this understanding was no peace beyond the line. And there's even a book with that title, which is about the history of the colonization and conflicts in the Caribbean, I believe, mostly in the 17th century. And it's primarily looking at the English, but of course, they're getting into conflicts with the French and the Spanish as well. So anyway, technically speaking, Florida, even including the Florida Keys all the way down to Key West, all of that is entirely north of the Tropic of Cancer, which runs kind of just north of Cuba. So technically speaking, Florida wasn't quote-unquote beyond the line, and the peace should have held in regard to Florida. But as we'll see, both France and then Spain in reaction would end up ignoring all of this in regard to Florida, just as much as they did in the areas that actually were south of the Tropic of Cancer. Overall, at the Peace Conference of 1559, the issue of colonization in North America was basically left unresolved. The position of the Spanish government was still that, as per the terms of the 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas, which had been brokered by the Pope between Spain and Portugal, which at the time were the only two European powers getting heavily involved in the overseas exploration and colonization game. Um, according to this treaty, virtually all of the Western Hemisphere, including all of North America, was reserved for Spanish settlement. So the position of the Spanish government you know, what would it be, 65 years later, was, well, sorry, there's still this treaty brokered by the Pope that says we've got dibs on almost all of the Western Hemisphere. But the French government's position was that any place that didn't yet have real Spanish boots on the ground was still potentially up for grabs. And an element of religious conflict stemming from the Protestant Reformation would work its way into this rivalry as well, and would add significant fuel to the fire. Now, as the Protestant Reformation unfolded, and by the 1550s and 1560s, this has already been going on for a couple of generations, as the Protestant Reformation unfolded, of course, Spain remained militantly Catholic. In fact, it in many ways kind of doubled down on its Catholicism in reaction to Protestantism. But France was a somewhat more complicated case. While France throughout the period remained a majority Catholic country, and while the Catholic Church remained basically the established church in France, wedded at the hip with the French state in many ways, for much of the 16th century, France had a very significant Huguenot minority population. Now, the Huguenots were French Calvinists, their followers of the theological ideas of John Calvin. In France, the Huguenots never came anywhere close to being a majority of the population, but they were a large enough minority, if I remember correctly, I think maybe at their height, they constituted perhaps 15 percent, maybe even 20 percent of the French population, I forget. And while that's nowhere near enough to take over the French government and make Calvinism the established church there or anything like that, it is a large enough percentage to really matter, particularly considering a disproportionate number of the French Huguenots were prominent, 
and influential and wealthy and powerful types of people. And so for much of the 16th century, which remember means the 1500s, the French government actually gave them a fair amount of religious toleration by 16th century standards. Basically, during the 16th century, for the most part, the Huguenots were left alone as long as they didn't cause any trouble, as long as they went along with the laws and things in France. Now, this would change later, particularly under Louis XIV in the next century. And eventually the French state would crack down very hard on them. And what would happen when that occurred was that many Huguenots ended up leaving France for a variety of other countries and colonies where their religion wouldn't cause as much problems for them, including a fair number of them went to North America. For example, uh, Paul Revere's ancestry on his father's side was French Huguenot. That's why he has that non-English sounding last name, Revere. Uh, Also, a fair number of French Huguenots ended up in places like South Africa alongside Dutch colonists who were also Calvinists. But during this earlier period in the 16th century of relative toleration for French Huguenots, the French government was using them as some of their frontline settlers and soldiers in their projects of overseas imperialism in a sort of symbiotic way. So the Huguenots, for their part, liked the idea of being able to set up their own colonies, which were still technically under the French flag, but which would be mostly populated with Huguenots, and in which the Huguenots would be sort of the dominant church and all that. And for their part, the French government seems to have liked the idea of getting these dissidents out of the mother country while still putting them to a purpose that served the interests of French power, kind of very similar to what the English state did regarding the Puritans in the next century, where it simultaneously gets a lot of these dissenters to emigrate out of the mother country and thereby stops sowing their annoying discord in the imperial mother country. But at the same time, these people are still being put to use doing something that's useful from the perspective of the imperial metropolis. They're going and building up the empire elsewhere rather than just, you know, taking their human and financial capital and going and immigrating to a rival empire and thereby strengthening it. So in strategic terms, what France was doing in the 16th century with the Huguenots was actually more rational than what they do when they crack down on the Huguenots and force many of them to flee in the 17th century. So anyway, in 1562, the French government authorized a Huguenot nobleman and admiral named Gaspard de Coligny to organize an expedition to what today we would think of as the southeastern United States. He did so, and he placed another Huguenot naval officer and explorer named Jean Ribot in charge of leading this expedition. This expedition is the first known European discovery of what today we know as the St. John's River, which Ribot named the River May because that was the month in which they discovered it. And they attempted to plant a small settlement along the river. However, the settlers they left there had a rough time of things, and most of that original group soon returned to Europe. When Spain found out that the French were planting, or attempting to plant anyway, a colony in La Florida, which, despite all their problems, they still sort of considered like they had dibs amongst all the Europeans to it, when they found this out, they began uh, considering sending an expedition against these Huguenots, but before they could actually get it underway, they found out that this French colonization project had failed, and that most of the group had left, 
Basically, they had run into problems just like all the previous Spanish attempts at colonization. And this just seemed to confirm the opinion of the Spanish rulers that La Florida was so problematic, it just wasn't worth trying to settle there. A couple years later, in 1564, another group of French colonists, led by a Huguenot military officer named René de Laudonnier, came and founded a settlement that they called Fort Caroline, in June of 1564, a bit of a ways up the St. John's River, at an area that today we call St. John's Bluff. Now, as far as I know, last I checked, we still don't know for sure the exact location of where Fort Caroline was today, but there is a National Parks Memorial to it in an area that experts believe is at least its approximate location. Laudonnier's colony there, Fort Caroline, started off doing relatively well, they established pretty good relationships with the Indians in the neighborhood, and they sent expeditions up the river to look around at the interior of Florida. But before long, the colony began to have hard times. They began to run short on food and other supplies, and they were not able to get any from the natives. Morale began to collapse, and a small group of French deserters left Fort Caroline and went to the Caribbean to basically go privateering against some of the Spanish-held islands. But these corsairs ended up eventually being captured by the Spanish, and this is what tipped off Spain to the fact that the French had begun a fairly serious colonial effort in La Florida. So they knew that French Huguenots which in the Spanish mind is even worse than just, you know, Frenchmen in general. French Huguenots are really making another serious go at the dangerous, not very valuable for its own sake, sandbar known as La Florida. The French government, meanwhile, was preparing to send a fleet commanded by Jean Rabot to Florida in order to significantly resupply and reinforce Fort Caroline. Once over there, Rabot was going to kind of take charge and was going to be the captain general and viceroy of New France, as the French were calling the American territories that they wanted to take over. The Spanish government ended up finding out the exact details of this planned expedition thanks to a spy, but more on that later. So because of this, because they found out not only had the French made a pretty serious effort to build a fort and a settlement in La Florida, but now they're planning on sending significant reinforcements to it as well. Suddenly, the Spanish government found La Florida way, way more interesting and alluring again. And this has often struck me, uh, I, I often think about big historical things and metaphors to sort of wrap my head around them. And the way I've often thought of this sudden change of heart on the part of the Spanish government, where not long before this, the Spanish government is literally saying like, yeah, Florida's worthless and we're not even going to try to colonize it anymore. In fact, we're going to ban further attempts at colonization there to all of a sudden, oh my God, we got to get in. We got to send, you know, get there and take over and, and really get serious about this again. And um, the way I think about it is it's sort of like if you've got uh, kind of a spoiled kid and he's got all sorts of like toys and just crazy amounts, way more stuff than he could ever play with. And at any given time, he's really only interested in playing with a small percentage of his massive toy stash. And then a friend or a cousin or something comes over around the same age 
and starts to kind of look at some of the toys that are gathering dust in the back of the spoiled kid's closet and maybe find some some toy back there that the spoiled kid got, you know, two Christmases ago and hasn't played with since, probably forgot he even had. And he takes it out and goes, oh, this is neat. And he starts using it and playing with it. And then the spoiled kid immediately, you know, gets all pissed, grabs it, goes, that's mine. You can't have that, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like that's that's really what's kind of going on here to to a large extent, I think. You know, as long as no Europeans are really messing with Florida, Spain's like, ah, it's worthless. We don't care. But as soon as someone else tries to, you know, grab it, then suddenly, hey, 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 hands off, that's ours. So as King Philip reconsiders and ultimately rescinds his earlier decision regarding Florida, the man who is going to get the Spanish asiento and title of Adelantado to colonize Florida this time around is going to be Pedro Menendez de Aviles. Pedro Menendez was born in 1519, coincidentally the same year as Ponce de Leon's first voyage to Florida. He hailed from an area on the north coast of Spain known as Asturia on the Bay of Biscay, which is that corner of the Atlantic Ocean which lies between the north coast of Spain and the west coast of France. During this time period in the 16th century, when Spain and France were so frequently in conflict, the Bay of Biscay was the setting for a lot of maritime conflicts between the French and Spanish. So Menendez grew up in a family and an entire kind of extended family community that was heavily involved, not only in maritime trade, but also in privateering and warfare. So as a young man, Menendez served a few years on a privateering ship before getting his own small privateer vessel when he was still only in his 20s. And within a few years of that, he was so successful at doing that that he had his own armed galleon and was using it to go after French corsairs. Now, a galleon, if you don't know, is a fairly large multi-deck ship that can be used for carrying cargo and also for fighting. Uh, Also, another vocabulary note, a corsair is simply a term typically used for a French privateer, although sometimes it's used for privateers of other countries as well. And occasionally, a corsair is even a term used to describe a flat-out pirate. And obviously, sometimes the line between a pirate and a privateer is a little bit hazy. So anyway, clearly Menendez was very effective at his trade, and by the time he was in his 30s, he owned several significant ships and had been authorized by the Spanish state to operate in, quote-unquote, the Indies, which basically meant the Caribbean. In the 1550s, when Spain and France went to war in that Italian war of 1551-59, to Menendez was heavily involved in that conflict as well. At one point, he was captured by French corsairs and had to borrow a large amount of money to pay his own ransom. But even though that puts some financial strains on him, he was ultimately able to turn this misfortune into at least some advantage for himself because while he was being held prisoner, he learned about some of France's war plans and once he was released, He was able to share this information with the Spanish government and then kind of leveraged that to help his own career and became even more heavily involved in countering France's activities in the Western Hemisphere. Menendez was eventually able to acquire even more ships of his own and received the rank of Captain General from the Spanish government. So he's often acting as a privateer targeting enemy privateers, so sort of like a counter-privateer, if you will. 
1559, like I mentioned before, the war between France and Spain officially ended, but like I said, the peace really only held in Europe. The Spanish government was, by this point, in a fiscal tight spot from all the wars they'd been fighting for decades. The French government was too, but not as much at the time. That said, Spain was still determined to try to maintain and enlarge their huge claims over most of the land in the Western Hemisphere, something which obviously France seemed ready to try to significantly challenge. And again, the Spanish position, as I mentioned before, was that the Treaty of Tordesillas from 1494 gave them dibs on almost everything in the Western Hemisphere. While again, the position of the French was they've got the right to try to take over anything that they could physically occupy that Spain didn't already have real boots on the ground in. So again, the main imperial grunts in the Western Hemisphere that France was using during this time, at least down in the, in the southern part of North America, were these Protestants, these Huguenots, who would have been particularly disinclined to give two shits about a treaty that had been brokered by the Pope between two Catholic kingdoms in the 1490s. I mean, Frenchmen in general might be willing to thumb their nose at some treaty between Spain and Portugal. But especially if you were a Protestant, you might even take like particular delight in giving the bird to a treaty brokered by the Pope. Now, despite his very successful operations in these conflicts, Menendez had been rubbing some people within the Spanish kind of imperial administrative and regulatory state the wrong way. He was one of these sorts of operators who's very ruthlessly and pragmatically effective, but he's not always the best at following all of the technical bureaucratic rules and regulations and showing deference to all of the kind of bureaucratic flunkies. And so he rubs the Dudley Do-Right bureaucrats in the wrong ways. And after the war, Menendez and his brother were actually arrested under the orders of the Casa de Contracción, which was kind of an imperial regulatory agency. And they were arrested for having supposedly violated the letter of some of Spain's mercantilist maritime regulations. And they were initially convicted and sent to jail, and they were there, I believe, for over a year. But Menendez, possibly because he had other friends within the Spanish government already, and because he was just simply ruthlessly effective as an imperial contractor, he had fans who mattered. And after languishing in jail for a while, a higher court ultimately exonerated Menendez. And upon his release, King Philip II of Spain, who had actually spoken out on Menendez's behalf, while he was being tried and imprisoned, um, the king likewise praised him when he was finally exonerated and released. He was just too effective of an imperial contractor and operator in the conflicts that Spain was in. And I think the king realized, too, maybe, that the charges against Menendez, they were kind of BS. They were, at best, kind of violating little technicalities of the rules of things, and perhaps even less than that. So soon after Menendez got out of prison, when King Philip is now changing his tune regarding Florida, he decided that Menendez was the right guy to finally get the Florida problem under control. 
So in early 1565, King Philip assigned Menendez to do some research and complete a detailed report on Florida, including everything known at the time about its geography, and to kind of look into if it might in fact actually be worth still trying to colonize it, despite all the disasters and all the problems that had occurred over those, you know, 50 or so years since Ponce de Leon's first voyage. Menendez's report said that if French corsairs did establish a base on Florida, they could use it to very effectively prey on the Spanish shipping that was heading from New Spain, from Mexico and South America, back to the mother country. Of course, a lot of this was shipping precious metals mined in the New World back to Spain, which was vital for Spain to keep up its imperial and war projects. So obviously the Spanish crown is going to be very sensitive to anything that could increase threats to that operation. Menendez's report also warned against allowing quote-unquote heretics, meaning Protestants, to settle in Florida because they might succeed in converting the natives to their faith. Historian Eugene Lyon writes, quote, Menendez was strongly convinced that Protestant heretics and American aboriginals held similar beliefs, probably satanic in origin, end quote. And of course, because of this assumed satanic similarity, Menendez assumed that Protestantism would more easily take root among the natives than would the true faith of Catholicism, which would, of course, be more alien to them and their satanic aboriginal faith. Menendez also argued in this report that there was probably something like a so-called Northwest Passage, some kind of water route that went through to the Pacific, and that occupying Florida would help Spain to then find and secure control over this waterway. So Menendez's report was the final kind of straw convincing the king to have another serious go at Florida. King Philip initially decided not to directly sponsor Menendez's expedition, but instead to go the old Adelantado kind of imperial contractor route, with Menendez, of course, being the Adelantado in question. However, later on, the Spanish crown is going to kick in pretty significantly and directly to Menendez's expedition, once they found out how serious the French were in Florida and how much they were trying to reinforce it. But even then, once the crown decided to kick in directly, still, Menendez was shouldering a lot of the expense and risk himself. Because King Philip was still somewhat limited in available resources because of all the fiscal strains from all these wars that Spain had been in. But of course, from Menendez's perspective, the flip side, the at least potential upside, if things worked out well, was the possibility of big rewards the same things that motivated every imperial contractor to take on all the risks of doing what they did. The Asiento, or contract that Menendez got for this, said that if he was successful, his jurisdiction in America would run all the way from Newfoundland and Canada down to Florida, and westward until the frontiers of Mexico, which basically would have comprised most, if not all, of eastern North America, if it had actually worked out that way and if Spain had actually had the numbers and resources to really establish a presence in all those areas. Menendez hoped that success in Florida would, best-case scenario, gain him the title, the status, and the wealth of a Marquess, which is what had happened to Hernando Cortez as a result of his conquest of Mexico. 
Menendez also thought success in Florida would give him more pull with the imperial trade regulators, who had been kind of an annoyance to his business activities. And this would obviously, you know, be a giant boon to him to get that straightened out and get those wheels greased. But Menendez also had motivations aside from just seeking to increase his status, power, and wealth personally. As powerful and as important as those motivations were for him as they were for all conquistadors and wannabe conquistadors, still, all available evidence indicates that that was not the only sort of motivation that was motivating him. All the evidence indicates that he really was a nationalistic Spaniard, at least in the sense of nationalism as it existed in the 16th century, which is not exactly the same as how nationalism evolves from, say, the French Revolution onward or something like that. But, you know, not only is he a patriotic Spaniard, but also perhaps more importantly to this story and how it ends up playing out. All available historical evidence points to the fact that Menendez really was a devoutly and militantly Catholic guy. And so his genuine fear and hatred of the Huguenots would have also been a giant motivation for him to do the things that he's going to do. Eugene Lyon's book, The Enterprise of Florida, is one of my main secondary sources in regard to the story of Menendez's conquest of Florida, but I also was able to locate in my research for this episode a fairly recent English translation of a key Spanish primary source that was sort of lost, at least to English speakers, for a long time, and that is Pedro Menendez de Aviles and the Conquest of Florida, a new manuscript, which was written by a guy named Gonzalo Solis de Maris. And this edition of it was edited, annotated, and translated by a guy named David Arbasu. And it was published very recently, in 2017, by the University Press of Florida. This account by Solis is one of only two first-hand written accounts that were written by participants on Menendez's original Florida expedition. The other was by a guy named Father Francisco Lopez de Mendoza Grajales, who wrote a short account that contains a lot less detail. But Gonzalo Salas de Maris, who wrote, I believe he actually wrote it, you know, years after the expedition happened, but still it's a first-hand kind of memoir of it. And it's a much larger and more detailed take than that of Father Lopez. Salas was actually Menendez's brother-in-law and one of his right-hand guys, sort of his lieutenants in this expedition. Now, obviously that means you have to take his biases into account and, you know, sometimes take some aspects of his story with a grain or a bunch of grains of salt, because, of course, this guy who's the brother-in-law and sidekick of Pedro Menendez is always going to try and put his best spin on things that the Spanish in general and Menendez in particular are doing, to put those things always in the best light. But still, it's the most important contemporary eyewitness account available of Menendez's conquest of Florida. There's just, you know, less sources than there are to be found regarding some of the other colonial conquests. And on this question of Menendez's religious motivations, Solis says that he intended to, quote, wage war on them, the Huguenots, quickly and with all discipline, and they would be driven out of Florida to prevent them from implanting their evil sect in it, end quote. 
And one more motivation that Menendez had that was very personal as well was that he wanted to take the opportunity of leading an expedition to Florida to look into the disappearance of one of his sons who had gone missing in America a few years back. So with this very potent mixture of wealth, power, prestige, nationalism, devout religious belief, and even a desire to try to find his own missing son. On March 15, 1565, Pedro Menendez officially signed an asiento with the Council of the Indies, which was kind of representing the crown side of the deal. And this asiento laid out the details regarding the conquest and colonization of La Florida. The first part of the contract specified Menendez's duties and obligations in great detail, and the second part in equal detail specified all the privileges and rewards that he would get if he was successful. So in the first part, it specified the number of ships and men that Menendez would have to provide, and even specified that some of the men brought along would also have to have various types of artisan skills. And of course, it also specified that he would have to take along a certain number of priests in order to start proselytizing the natives. It also specified what sorts of weapons and equipment Menendez's soldiers would have. Now, as far as the mission itself, Menendez was supposed to begin by exploring the Florida coast and to try to find a good place to start a settlement, and of course, to remove any French trespassers if he found them. He was then supposed to found either two or three towns, depending on what was possible, and each of these were to be equipped with defensive fortifications in order to fend off any hostile natives or any rival Europeans. Another thing the Asiento specified was that Menendez was supposed to bring along livestock and to begin importing more livestock and also slaves to begin developing the area once the colonies were established. The territory Menendez was supposed to explore and start colonizing was, of course, as we've kind of mentioned before, much larger than just today's state of Florida. Because, again, when the Spanish said La Florida at the time, they basically meant much of what today is the eastern United States. Now, on the other side of the contract, the king promised Menendez a one-time payment of 15,000 ducats if he left before the end of May. In addition, Menendez would be the Adelantado of Florida and get all the you know rights and privileges of that and would pass this title down to his heirs. He would also hold the titles of governor and captain general of the colony of Florida, and he would receive a salary for these jobs. He would also get the authority to distribute land in Florida, and he himself would be granted personal ownership of an amount of land that in our terms would be around five and a half thousand square miles. Menendez would also get various types of maritime trade privileges in regard to Florida as well. So, at least in theory, if A, Menendez's expedition was successful, and B, Florida ended up developing into a very profitable colony, Menendez stood to win big. Menendez signed this contract, as did a member of the Council of the Indies, and then several days later, King Philip himself did personally sign it as well, and even added his own kind of introductory and closing statements to it, in which he emphasized various points that he wanted to really harp on. 
Overall, in most of its major aspects, this Asiento was very similar to what previous would-be conquerors of Florida had gotten from the Spanish crown, although Menendez was actually promised even a bit more in terms of potential benefits than any of the previous would-be conquistadors of Florida had been promised. And this shows just how much more urgency the Spanish government felt now that they knew that the French were really trying to make a serious effort there. While Menendez was preparing, the Spanish government got more intelligence on increasing French incursions into Florida, and the king began really trying to prod Menendez to leave by May 1st if possible, but this proved just wildly unfeasible to launch the kind of expedition they were trying to do in that short amount of time. Instead, what ended up happening was that by May, the Spanish crown decided to more directly subsidize Menendez. And they uh, added 500 additional troops at their expense. And again, this is all based on increasing fears of the French presence in Florida. And as things went along, increasingly, everyone involved in planning and supplying Menendez's expedition, including both the Spanish government and Menendez himself, they were in kind of a dilemma, a balancing act, where... On the one hand, they're trying to make sure that Menendez has enough manpower and resources to be able to deal with any French presence that might be there in Florida, you know, to have enough soldiers and firepower to do that. But on the other hand, they want him to try and leave as soon as possible. But that necessitates maybe going a bit lighter on all the resources and preparations and having a lighter footprint, so to speak. So, you know, there's this sort of balancing act going on, like, We want to make sure we have enough resources to do our job, but we also want to try and get over there quickly, if possible, before the French can send more and more people over there. During this time of preparation, Menendez himself was also very skillfully and shrewdly trying to leverage the urgency of his mission in order to get the Spanish government to cover more and more aspects of his preparations, including some things that he'd originally been supposed to cover himself. And then in late May, the Spanish government got much more detailed intelligence on French plans for Florida. A Spanish doctor who was living in France at the time, who also was a spy for the Spanish government, a guy named Dr. Gabriel Enveja, was tasked by the Spanish ambassador in France with investigating French preparations to send a massive amount of reinforcements to Fort Caroline. This is the expedition being prepared under Jean Rabot. So Dr. Inveja personally went to the French port of Dieppe, which is where the expedition was being readied. And there he found seven ships already almost fully loaded and ready to go, being prepared to send over to Florida. And the only thing that was really delaying them at the time from launching was some kind of wrangling back and forth between Coligny and Ribot over kind of the exact details of the authority each one of them had in regard to the Florida colonization project. So Dr. Inveja made a super detailed report on everything that he found out to the Spanish ambassador. And the ambassador was so impressed with all the information that he sent Inveja back to Spain in order to personally report to King Philip, which he did in early June. Historian Eugene Lyon writes, quote, There was every reason for the king to praise the thorough and perceptive report which Dr. Inveja had made, for it provided excellent intelligence about the enemy's plans and dispositions. End quote. Among the things that this revealed was that the French, who 
who were being ready to go over to Florida were very well equipped. For example, almost all of their soldiers were equipped with arquebuses, which were the best infantry weapons available at the time. Eugene Lyon writes, quote, Enveja reported that one of the seven ships had been converted into a veritable Noah's Ark. It carried horses and mares, rams and sheep, bulls and cows, and even asses for the Florida colony. A number of wives and children had been embarked for the voyage. What most alarmed the Spanish was the Huguenots' avowed aim of evangelizing with the Lutheran religion. Seven or eight ministers of the new heretical faith were carried for that purpose. End quote. Now, he's using Lutheran in quote marks when he says this, and this is something you'll find in a lot of the contemporary Spanish sources that they frequently just refer to all Protestants, whether they're actually Lutheran or not, as Lutheran. That was just sort of the generic term often used at the time. But anyway, the French were clearly planning on trying to do the same thing in Florida that the Menendez expedition was trying to do, to begin a really serious, lasting colonization presence in La Florida. And as was the case with Menendez's relationship with the Spanish government, the Huguenot expedition was receiving some significant support from the French government as well. Now, continuing with Lyon's summary of Dr. Enveja's report, quote, With regard to the quality of French leadership, Dr. Enveja did not rely upon secondhand information. He sought and obtained an interview with John Ribot himself, and carried away vivid impressions of the Huguenot chief. Ribot projected the image of a man of competence and vigor, combined with determination and high temper. In these qualities, as well as in his ruddy complexion and reddish hair, Ribot strangely resembled his future antagonist, Pedro Menendez Diavales. The two men were, moreover, of equivalent age and Accidents of history had brought these into a conflict in which these men also professed contending religions. End quote. In Veja's report, of course, only added even more urgency to Menendez's expedition, and also added to the Crown's willingness to subsidize Menendez directly with even more money and troops. Menendez managed to get tens of thousands of additional Spanish ducats from the crown for various expenses, though a significant amount of the cost would still end up being borne by a combination of Menendez himself and various investors. In total, the Spanish crown would ultimately make a down payment of about 37,000 ducats to Menendez's expedition at its outset, while Menendez and his investors would pony up at least 47,000 more, possibly a bit more than that. It's kind of hard because the records for that aspect of things are more kind of, you know, patchy and bits and pieces, whereas it's a bit easier to get hard records on all the Spanish investment, you know, coming from the Spanish government directly. Now, of that investment coming from Menendez and his investors, about 20,000 of it came from just one guy, a very wealthy businessman who was also a relative of Menendez, a guy named Pedro del Castillo. Now, in addition to all that, of course, Menendez himself was risking his own ships, which were huge capital investments. And obviously, he and everyone else who was personally going to Florida were risking their own lives as well. It was a large undertaking. When it was finally ready to launch, Menendez's expedition would be comprised of 10 ships 
and over a thousand people. Regarding the expedition's personnel, while most of the men held the job of either soldier or sailor, over 100 of the soldiers Menendez was bringing also had an additional valuable skill of some sort, which included two surgeons, 10 stonemasons, 15 carpenters, 21 tailors, and 10 shoemakers, among others. And another group of soldiers, again numbering over 100, were also very experienced farmers. So this is a really serious attempt to plant a viable colony. And while the rank and file of Menendez's expedition came from all over the place, the leadership, you know, Menendez himself and his kind of lieutenants, they were all from a handful of Astorian families, most of whom were actually kin to Menendez in some way. Eugene Lyon writes of Menendez's subordinate leaders, quote, This homogenous group, bound together by common cultural and familial ties, could provide great reserves of purpose for the conquest. The fierce loyalties engendered within it and the common expectations shared by its members afforded a source of vital energy for the tasks of conquest and population. It gave depth to the efforts of the Adelantado. This was, therefore, a regional reservoir of talent. A certain stiffening of purpose was also added to the Florida effort by the backup of a sizable company of friends, relatives, and allies, meaning back in Asturia. Their hopes could cause them to persevere in their venture in the face of any adversity. End quote. On June 8, 1565, King Philip of Spain got word that Jean Rabot's ships had already left France about a week before, and this, of course, caused huge alarm among the Spanish. Now, what they didn't know was that the situation wasn't quite as bad as they thought. They didn't know that Rabot's ships hadn't made it very far, that they had actually ended up making it only as far as England before they had to pull in and stop there for a while because of bad weather, and that they wouldn't really resume their journey till the end of the month. But at the moment, as far as the Spanish knew, Rabot was just cruising along all the way towards Florida. So Menendez, of course prodded by the Spanish government, kind of frantically tried to get out of there as soon as possible. But still, it took weeks more preparations to get this large expedition fully outfitted. On June 27th, Menendez finally left Spain, but then quickly returned back due to bad weather, and his main force didn't leave Spain for good for another two days. Several other contingents who were leaving from different ports than Menendez himself was left even a little bit later than that. Now, the initial plan was that these different contingents would all rendezvous at the Canary Islands and then would proceed to the New World together from there. Menendez's main group reached the Canaries on July 4th, having had good weather for that part of the journey, but the other ships hadn't, you know, left on time and they weren't at the Canaries yet, and Menendez just couldn't wait very long. So he left without the rest of his group, leaving word with people in the Canaries that the rest of the expedition should try to rendezvous with Menendez in either Puerto Rico or Cuba, where Menendez planned to stop off for repairs and supplies and hopefully reinforcements before proceeding onward to Florida. Going across the Atlantic, Menendez's group was hit by a hurricane from July 21st to the 23rd, the winds of which probably to some degree sped up at least part of their journey, but which of course also resulted in a lot of problems, including the loss of a couple of their ships and some serious damage to the rest. 
Menendez even had to ditch some of the cannon on his own flagship, just in order to stay afloat during the storm. Basically, he's willing to do whatever it took, not just to stay alive, but to try to reach Florida as quickly as humanly possible. Now, in his hurry to get to Florida and deal with the French, he would be basically turning his back on his own son, who, like I mentioned before, had disappeared in America. And looking into his son's fate had been one of his motives in being interested in Florida, but now he's going to be so single-mindedly focused on expunging the French Huguenots from Florida that he's going to really kind of not bother looking into his son's disappearance for some time. When Menendez's contingent showed up in San Juan on August 8th, they were in pretty rough shape, but Menendez still hoped that if he hurried, he might reach the River May, again the St. John's River, before Jean Rabot did. Menendez's plan and hope was to be able to seize the river mouth before Rabot arrived, and thereby be able to prevent the two groups of Frenchmen, Rabot's group and those already at Fort Caroline, from being able to combine. Then he planned to fortify and hold the position at the river mouth and kind of wait until more reinforcements arrived from Spain. Still, things were not at all off to an auspicious start at this point, and while Menendez was in San Juan, 30 of his soldiers and three of his priests actually deserted. While in San Juan, Menendez was able to get some repairs to his ships, but very little in the way of supplies or reinforcements. The only really significant thing he was able to pick up in Puerto Rico were 24 horses. He wanted to eventually have all of his soldiers in Florida mounted so that they'd be very mobile and able to kind of cover the vast countryside, but that would not come to pass. Aside from the fact that 24 horses was nowhere near enough to mount hundreds of soldiers, even of those 24, 23 of them ended up having to be put down and disposed of at sea while they were en route to Florida, because bad weather caused the horses to get knocked around in the boat so badly that their legs got broken, so they had to be euthanized. On August 15th, after a week in San Juan, Menendez set out again, initially intending to head towards Havana to try and make another effort at resupply and reinforcement, but not long after they left, he changed his mind about the route and decided to just bypass Havana and head straight for Florida instead. In part, he did this because he was worried about being ambushed by French corsairs around Cuba and in part because he wanted to try to beat Jean Rabot to Fort Caroline, no matter what. During their first night sailing in the Bahama Channel, the Spaniards saw a comet in the sky, which, despite all that had gone wrong for them so far, they interpreted as a positive omen. During the latter part of their journey to Florida, Menendez had his men train and prepare as much as possible for the coming conquest. Solis writes that as the expedition was nearing Florida, Menendez, quote, gave orders that all the weapons in the ships be given to the captains so they could distribute them among their soldiers, who were to keep them clean and ready. Since most of the soldiers were raw recruits, each of them was to shoot three rounds every day until they arrived in Florida in order to lose their fear of the arquebuses and be properly trained. Each round was to be shot with bullets into a target erected in the said galleon, with prizes awarded to the soldiers in the companies that did best, and to their captains, so that they would take great care to make them skilled. 
With this daily drill, they also recited catechism and the litanies, praying to our Lord, and beseeching Him to give them victory in everything. They sailed until 28 August 1565, St. Augustine's Day, when they sighted the land of Florida. Falling to their knees and reciting the Te Deum Laudamus, they all praised our Lord, continuing their prayers and beseeching our Lord to make them victorious in all their endeavors. End quote. Now, in his account, Solos reports Menendez and his men praying very frequently, especially before setting off on an operation or an attack or anything like that, and sometimes they'd even celebrate an entire Mass for such occasions. That summer, while Menendez and Ribot led their respective expeditions to Florida, a diplomatic conference was taking place in Bayonne between the Spanish and French governments. Initially, King Philip planned to raise the issue of the French incursions into Florida at the conference, but then he changed his mind because, as Eugene Lyon describes, the issue of Florida, quote, might becloud the major concern of Spain at the meeting, that of the conservation and advancement of the Catholic faith in France. Thus, the two monarchs most concerned chose to avoid a direct confrontation over Florida while their fleet sailed to their inevitable clash there. End quote. And it's important to keep something in mind that's easy for us to forget today. We're used to instant global communications in our day. But keep in mind that back then, these monarchs and their ministers, you know, the heads of the respective governments in the different imperial metropolises, they have absolutely no clue of what is actually happening on the ground on the other side of the world at the time. They don't even have the telegraph yet. So communications only go as fast as a big old wooden sailing ship. And so no one in Europe has any clue what's happening on the ground in the Western Hemisphere until literally months after it's already gone down. It's just interesting to think about, like, what a different world it was when information went so slowly. People were just habituated to and used to not knowing what the hell's going on on the other side of the world, even if it's something that concerns them very much. And they must have just been used to it because they didn't know anything different. You know, we think about how much it like drives some people crazy if they're really addicted to their phone and to constantly being plugged in and knowing what's going on with their friends and with the news and whatever. Like some of these people will go nuts if you put them in a situation where there's no Wi-Fi or cell phone reception for a day or two. Now, I think in the long run, it's probably good for them mentally to do that. But just think about, you know, back then, it's like you didn't know for months what's happening a few thousand miles away. Now, Philip heard some rumors that the French were sending even more enforcements after Ribot, So he began to work on some plans of his own to send his own additional reinforcements to Florida, though things in Florida would end up really being decided by events on the ground before either government ever was able to get significant reinforcements over there. So what was actually happening was that Ribot was taking his sweet time and it almost entirely squandered his two-week head start. And this I find kind of humorous. It's an interesting contrast to the usual sort of stereotypes contrasting 
the Catholic, especially Spanish, work ethic and punctuality on the one hand, and the work ethic and punctuality of Protestants, especially Calvinists. You know, you've got the, the usual stereotype is that Catholics in general and Spaniards in particular, you know, they're kind of slow. They do things at their own half-assed pace. They're kind of, you know, not the most punctual and not the most efficient, whatever. Whereas Protestants in general and Calvinists in particular, they're, you know, super diligent and punctual and, you know, constantly working hard as possible and whatever. And it is kind of interesting that here's a scenario in which it's actually the Calvinist Rabot who's kind of screwing around and dilly-dallying, and it's the Catholic Spaniard Menendez who's actually being quicker and more efficient and more punctual and all that. Eugene Lyon describes this as follows, quote, while Pedro Menendez was driven by urgency to risk the Bahama Passage with his reduced forces, Ribot was leisurely cruising the Florida coast on his way to Fort Caroline. Thus, on the day that John Ribot dropped anchor off the St. John's River, Pedro Menendez had already made his Florida landfall off Cape Canaveral. End quote. René de Laudonnier, who was in charge in Fort Caroline and who was awaiting Ribot's reinforcements, had had a very rough time of things in Florida that summer. And not just because of the heat and the humidity and the bugs and the lack of all the modern ways we have to try and deal with those issues. But as I mentioned before, the French at Fort Caroline had experienced food shortages and other supply problems, which in turn led them into some tension with the local natives from whom the French wanted food, but the natives weren't interested in giving them food. And this started to sour their relationship with the natives a bit, which had started off pretty positive. In fact, on top of that, Laudonnier himself had gotten ill. And a lot of others in the fort weren't doing very well health-wise either. And so, by mid-August, Laudonnier's group at Fort Caroline were actually preparing to leave and go back to France as soon as the weather was favorable enough to permit it. So, even for them, La Florida strikes again. It's just a shithole. But while they were waiting for favorable weather, Ribot arrived. So, you know, they never got the chance to leave and go back to France. And Ribot arrived barely ahead of Menendez. But just because Ribot had arrived at the mouth of the St. John's River didn't mean he was able to immediately make it upriver to Fort Caroline to combine his forces with Laudonnier's. The mouth of the St. John's River was much less navigable back then than it is in our time. So in the century since the 16th century, it has been dredged and things like that in order to make it much easier for large ships to get in and out of the port of Jacksonville. But that wasn't the case in the 16th century. So even the smaller ships among Ribot's little armada had to spend a few days unloading cargo onto land before they could pass over the shallow bar at the river's mouth. And they weren't able to do this and start heading upriver until September 4th. And at that time, the larger of Ribot's ships still remained anchored at sea just outside the river mouth. That same afternoon, September 4th, the same day that the smaller ships had finally been able to go upriver, the men who were on the larger ships outside the river sighted approaching vessels that turned out to be Pedro Menendez's ships. 
Several days earlier, during one of his landings further south on Florida's coast, Menendez had had a good meeting with some natives that he encountered, during which those natives gave him some information on the exact location of Fort Caroline. And armed with that information, Menendez had made it to the mouth of the St. John's. So Menendez had failed to beat Jean Rabot to the St. John's River, but just barely, literally by a handful of days. His gamble, which had been to try to beat Rabot there, but at the cost of kind of skimping on reinforcements and resupply from the Caribbean, had narrowly, narrowly failed to pan out as he had hoped. Now, one thing you'll find about Pedro Menendez that is a common characteristic of all successful conquistadors is he's pretty good at quickly adapting to adversity. When unexpected problems happen or when his plans don't work out as he had thought or when it turns out circumstances are not what he initially thought they were, he's pretty good at quickly, you know, improvising, adapting, and overcoming. And this is, you know, a lot of these conquistadors, obviously I and probably most of you listening have some severe moral issues with some of the things that they did and why they did them. But at the same time, it's like on some level, I can't help but have an admiration for some of them, at least just in terms of like their effectiveness and their adaptability and all that sort of stuff. So as we'll see, Menendez is going to be pretty good at improvising, at changing plans, etc. And it's not always going to work out perfectly, but more often than not, he makes the smartest move possible at the time. And even when he makes a move that ends up not working out as planned, he's usually pretty quick to change plans. So anyway, showing up at the St. John's River mouth and finding that the French were already there, Menendez quickly decided that he would try to strike at the French ships, the larger ones that were still anchored outside the river. But he decided to wait until dark so that the wind would be favorable. His plan at this point was to sail in close to those ships during the night, anchor very close to them, and then attack them at dawn. But he wasn't able to pull off as much stealth as he hoped, and when the French sailors realized that the Spanish ships were closing in on them during the night, some of the officers and men on board the two little armadas began to shout back and forth at each other, first just kind of identifying themselves and then issuing various sorts of threats and things like this. Gonzalo Salas recounts these communications in his version of events and reports that once it was confirmed you know, that you have French ships over here and Spanish ships over there, quote, the Adelantado, meeting Menendez, said to them, are you Catholics or Lutherans? And who is your general? End quote. And again, remember, Lutheran is just generic for Protestant at the time, even though just a century or so later, people are mostly going to clearly differentiate between Lutherans and Calvinists, at the time, Lutheran was just generically interchangeable with, with Protestant. Anyway, back to Solace. Quote, They replied that they were all Lutherans of the new religion, and their general was John Ribot. Then they asked the Spaniards who they were. Who was the man asking them questions? Whose fleet that was? Why it had come to that land? And who was its general? The Adelantado replied, He who asks this of you is called Pedro Menendez. And this fleet belongs to the king of Spain, and I am its general. I have come here to hang and behead all the Lutherans I may find on this land and sea. 
These are the instructions I have from my king, which I will fulfill when day comes, for I will board your ships, and if I find any Catholic, I will treat him kindly. Solace then says that the French quote, replied at once with various insults and abusive words against our Lord the King, calling him by name, and against the Adelantado, saying, Let this and that be for King Philip and for Pedro Menendez. I'm guessing that's kind of a euphemism for obscenities. And if you are a brave man, as they say you are, come now, and do not wait until tomorrow. Solace then says, quote, The Adelantado, on hearing so many insulting words against his king, ordered the cables to be paid out in order to board the enemy. End quote. So basically the French had successfully goaded Menendez into attacking them while it was still nighttime. Kind of calls to mind the taunting Frenchman from Monty Python. When Menendez attacked, the French cut their anchor lines and quickly escaped, and they were able to do so because their ships were faster and in much better condition than Menendez's battered fleet. In the morning, with the French ships gone, Menendez initially wanted to resume his original plan, which was to try to seize the river mouth so that he could hold it and prevent the two French contingents from being able to combine. But he quickly realized that most of the French soldiers from the ships had already gotten out and were on land near the river mouth, basically holding it, and that on top of that, the smaller French ships, the ones that had crossed the bar already and were already inside the river, they were waiting there just inside the river mouth, so Menendez was not in a good position. He had French soldiers on land and the smaller French ships just upriver inside the bar waiting for him. It was obvious that any kind of landing there would be impossible for him because his own ships wouldn't even be able to cross over the bar unless they were unloaded first. And you're not going to be able to do that if French soldiers and ships are right there able to shoot at you. So again, he quickly realizes, kind of, you know, orients himself to the the situation and changes his plans accordingly. He decided instead to just pull out, make a temporary tactical retreat, go southward and plant his initial Spanish settlement, and then figure out what to do next against the French. Here's how Eugene Lyon describes the overall balance of forces at this point in events. Quote, Insofar as naval tonnage was concerned, the Spanish held an almost two-for-one edge, but a large part of this tonnage was in one ship, the Gallius San Paleo, end quote. Which, by the way, a galleus is a, is a very large ship that can be used for cargo and for war, and this was Menendez's flagship. This is by far his largest and most expensive ship. Back to Lyon, quote, The great gun platform of this ship could indeed outrange any opponent, but was still not fully rigged after the hurricane had struck it west of the Canaries. The French had, in fact, just demonstrated that they could outsail Menendez's vessels. In the holds of the French vessels lay an enormous wealth of bronze artillery, which remained only a potential weapon until the dismounted guns could be put into service. Insofar as manpower was concerned, the two opponents were nearly equal. Menendez commanded some 800 men, 500 soldiers, 200 seamen, and 100 others. On the French side, there was an equivalent number of soldiers, 
possibly 200 officers and sailors, and the remainder of Laudonnier's original garrison of 300, depleted by death, disease, and corsairing in the Caribbean. The main striking force in any land action would be the armed and trained arquebusier, of whom each side possessed about 500. With regard to the matter of supply, it appears that the ship losses Pedro Menendez had suffered to date had not destroyed his basic store of supplies, food, and munitions, much of which was still safely stowed aboard the San Paleo. On their side, the French had come well supplied for an expedition of settlement and conquest. Part of these supplies had been unloaded. In sum, after striking some balance of advantages and disadvantages, the two sides were roughly equal. Under such circumstances, the decisive factor as the action began would be that of leadership. End quote. On September 8, 1565, Pedro Menendez landed at the site that thenceforward would become known as St. Augustine, which is basically the next inlet south of the St. John's River, or at least the next inlet that's of any significance to where, you know, a ship could pass through it. And there, Menendez formally took possession of Florida for King Philip of Spain and had himself officially sworn in as Adelantado, Captain General, and Governor of the Colony of Florida. St. Augustine would become the earliest permanent, meaning continuously occupied ever since, European settlement not only in Florida, but in any territory that would later become part of the United States. Maybe that gives you a plot spoiler as to what happens to Fort Caroline, which technically was founded a little bit earlier. But if you have the slightest clue about American history, you already know anyway that the French probably won't win. The name St. Augustine for the town came from the fact that Menendez's expedition had first made its landfall in Florida on the feast day of St. Augustine of Hippo. Historian Eugene Lyon describes the importance of all this, you know, official swearing in and whatever, as follows. Quote, The occasion was not a mere ceremony, nor did it simply mark a beginning date for the Spanish occupation of Florida. It held much greater significance. The first stage of a Spanish conquest, that of the construction of the political foundation upon which its social and economic structure should be built, was then and there accomplished. The first essential, the act of taking possession, done with solemnity and made a public record, fulfilled the requirements of the king's ordinances for conquest. To halt at this point, however, would be to overlook a vital part of the machinery for Spanish conquest and settlement. A major purpose of an adelantado was to introduce a most significant instrument of conquest, the municipal institutions of Spain. End quote. And all of this would include effects on the rights and duties of all the Spanish citizens who were involved with the settlement, including their rights to any land claims and the institutions of Spanish governments beginning in St. Augustine itself, but then moving out into the countryside as settlers dispersed and established plantations and other towns and so on. As the Adelantado, Menendez was in charge of making sure that Spanish institutions were established and extended into this new province. 
Menendez also began having lots of interactions with the Indians in the area who were various groups of the Tamuqua. And for the time being, Menendez tried to tread pretty lightly with them and to refrain for now from trying to mess with their existing society and religion while things were still in contention with the French and while the Spanish population in the area was still heavily outnumbered by the Tamuqua. Obviously, the assumption would be once the French are dealt with and once there start to be a lot more Spanish boots on the ground, then you can start to be a little bit more kind of heavy handed in nudging the natives in various ways. Menendez made his brother Bartolome, who was on the expedition, the governor of the district of St. Augustine and also the warden of the fort that the Spanish quickly began building there. Now, this fort was not it should be noted, the large, very sturdy cocaine fort that you can visit at St. Augustine today. That iteration of the fort came much later, after several earlier versions of kind of wood and earth structures, each one getting a little bit bigger and stronger than the previous ones, until finally the construction of the coquina one that you can go visit today. Now, back up at Fort Caroline, something over 40 miles to the north, the French Huguenot leaders held a war council in the quarters of René Laudonnier. They had gotten intelligence of their own from the Indians in their area regarding Menendez's activities to the south. And over Laudonnier's objections, Ribot and the rest of the French leadership decided to try to attack Menendez down in St. Augustine while the Spaniards were still unloading their ships. For this attack, only somewhere between 150 to at most 250 men would remain in Fort Caroline, while Ribot would take his four largest ships, loaded with the majority of French forces, around 200 sailors and around 400 or so of the best soldiers, and would take this force, sail it south, and try to hit St. Augustine and wipe it out before it really got going. Meanwhile... Down in St. Augustine, Menendez was getting very worried that his expensive flagship, the San Paleo, might end up getting either captured by the French or else sunk by a storm. It's hurricane season after all. Hurricane season lasts until November. So Menendez decided to send the San Paleo away to Hispaniola in order both to keep it safe and to try to fetch supplies and reinforcements. At the time that he sent the ship away, they had unloaded the weapons and ammunition from it, but not the food. But Menendez believed that he had enough food with him in St. Augustine to last for several months, by which time either the French would have wiped him out if they won, or else if he won, which obviously he hoped to do, something would have arrived to resupply him either from Spain directly or else from the Caribbean or perhaps both. So the San Paleo embarked on the night of September 10th, just barely before Ribot's strike force fleet showed up outside the St. Augustine Inlet. Menendez managed to get the rest of his ships pulled inside the inlet, despite the low tide. And rather than attacking the defenses of St. Augustine, considering that they couldn't cross the bar with their large ships, Ribot opted to try to chase the very vulnerable and very valuable San Paleo as it sailed away southward. But not long after this chase began, a hurricane hit. The winds, as is often the case with hurricanes in this part of the world, were mostly coming out of the north, 
which prevented the French under Rabot from being able to return back up to Fort Caroline. Now, in Solace's account, he of course describes all of this as a divinely ordained miracle, because of course God is on the side of the Catholics in his telling. So he says the following, quote, Two hours after the enemy began waiting for high tide, God performed a miracle. Even though the weather was calm and clear, all of a sudden the sea became very rough, and from the north came a strong wind that was contrary to what the French needed to go back to their harbor and fort. The Adelantado became aware of this. He was already ashore with his men, having a mass said in honor of the Holy Spirit, which everyone was to attend, beseeching him to enlighten him and guide him in a decision he wanted to make." After this mass, Menendez revealed the following plan at a war council. Solace describes it as follows, quote, Gentlemen, it occurs to me to tell you about a very good opportunity that I can clearly perceive in my senses and my soul. The wind is most unfavorable for the French to return to their fort and harbor, and it seems that this wind will last for many days. These men are Lutherans, something we knew before departing from Spain, that on pain of death, only men professing the new religion should embark, and that, under the same penalty, they should bring only books belonging to this sect. They themselves assured us of this when our fleet was anchored with theirs outside the harbor, since they said there was not Catholic among them, and when we wanted to punish them, they set sail and fled. For this reason, our war with them and theirs with us, has to be one of blood and fire, since they as Lutherans seek us Catholics to prevent us from spreading the Holy Gospel in these provinces. And we seek them for being Lutherans, to prevent them from spreading their harmful and hateful sect in this land and teaching it to the Indians. End quote. Menendez in this account then goes on to say that he plans to march overland to strike at Fort Caroline while it's not fully manned. Now, this move is going to end up being both the smartest and luckiest tactical decision of the whole story in many ways. A classic case of luck that was really due to making the right choice in the face of a bunch of variables and a bunch of unknowns where... There was potential opportunity, but also potential disaster. Menendez made an educated guess that turned out to be correct. That the French had sent most of their soldiers, including their best ones, in the seaborne strike force. And that therefore, Fort Caroline itself would be minimally garrisoned, and thus would be very vulnerable. He also realized that the storm was, at the very least, preventing the French fleet from returning to Fort Caroline, and that it might even potentially wreck it. He knew from local Indians that he could make an overland march up to Fort Caroline, and that if he did this, basically he'd be approaching the fort from a very unexpected direction, as most of its major defenses would be oriented towards the river. And by the way, just as a side note, historically, some of you may know this, the French have been very vulnerable... <laughs> throughout history, to being surprised by enemies who managed to attack from an unexpected direction. So, 
see the British taking of Quebec City in the Seven Years' War, see the whole Maginot Line thing in the Second World War, and see Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam in the 50s as just a few noteworthy examples of the French falling victim to this whole, like, assuming, like, oh, they're never going to come from that direction, so let's not even, you know, have any real defenses that way. And the next thing you know, oh, the enemy shows up where you don't think he can, and then you're in big trouble. Menendez believed that there'd be fewer, probably, than 300 men left at Fort Caroline and that many of them wouldn't be in the greatest of shape. This ended up being correct. Another common characteristic of effective military commanders is their ability to accurately figure out what the dispositions of their enemies and their enemies' forces are, to figure out what their enemy forces are up to, where the vulnerabilities might be, and, and even to kind of figure out the mindset of the enemy commanders. In his account of Menendez's presentation of this plan to his subordinate leaders, Solis even has him explaining the terms that he proposed to give to the French up at the fort. Quote, We can send them a trumpeter to say that they should surrender the fort and harbor and leave the land, and that they will be given ships and supplies with which to go back to France, and, if not, we will put all of them to the sword. End quote. Solis says that Menendez's subordinates debated the idea a bit, but that ultimately Menendez had already kind of made his decision. As we'll see, whether Solis's account of the terms he'd offered to the French was accurate, and whether or not it was really meant in earnest by Menendez, in the event that the taking of the fort and the fate of its occupants would play out quite a bit differently, they'd never really have the chance to even consider such terms, whether they were ever really on offer or not, even in the mind of Menendez. So Menendez took 500 of his best soldiers and personally led them north, setting off marching on September 18th, guided by a French prisoner whom they'd brought with them all the way from Spain, a Frenchman who had been to Fort Caroline previously. Now, while this ends up being tactically a very shrewd move, this overland march from St. Augustine to Fort Caroline was no easy task. I mean, it's a long damn walk today. When there are roads and things you could walk, imagine you're doing this where it's still largely open wilderness, forest, swamp, etc. Historian Eugene Lyon describes this march as follows, quote, During the storm, heavy rains had fallen. These continued for the next several days. The route of the Spaniards carried them along low areas west of the sandy coastal ridge and led them alongside broad, grassy sloughs. In normal weather, small streams wound through the marsh grass in these low areas, but the inundations of rain had converted these lowlands into lakes. The normal banks were overrun, and the water rose into the tangled underbrush which lay beyond. In such conditions, the marsh was difficult and arduous. In the vanguard went Basque axemen who could prepare the way for the little army. By the evening of September 19th, Menendez estimated that they had come 45 miles and were less than three miles from the site of the fort. The Spanish column left the low and marshy land, crossed into open pine barrens, and finally reached rolling country. Here, near the banks of the river, was deep virgin forest, studded with many magnificent oak and maple trees and covered thickly by wild grapevines. At nightfall, the leaders and their captains labored to gather the straggling forces and camped for the night in great discomfort from the continuing rainfall. Sometime before daybreak, the men were aroused, and the Frenchmen began to direct the Spaniards toward Fort Caroline. At this point, 
Menendez's purpose was only to try the defenses of the fort after an approach under cover of the woods on the south side. End quote. Now, at the actual point of contact here, at Fort Caroline, Menendez's force of around 500 soldiers significantly outnumbered the French at the fort, who really probably only numbered about 200 in total, and only about half of whom would have been actual soldiers who were in decent enough health to potentially fight. And remember that Laudonnier, who was in charge in the fort, was very sick himself, so as a result of this, there really wasn't good leadership in the fort, and things weren't being done properly as far as you know, vigilance and sentries and making sure the defenses were really ready to go. I mean, Fort Caroline was just not only undermanned, it was not properly prepared for serious defense. At dawn, on the morning of September 20th, the Spanish began their attack on Fort Caroline. It was still raining hard. They captured the sole sentry who was stationed outside the fort, the others, who'd been supposed to be on duty in the area, had headed back inside earlier because of the rain. Then the Spanish successfully stormed in through the main gate of the fort. Solis describes the scene that followed. Quote, when they were inside, they found many Frenchmen coming out of their houses in their nightshirts, and others fully clothed, trying to find out what had happened. These were killed at once. Others retreated and jumped from the walls. End quote. Then Sulla says, quote, Two trumpeters entered and placed themselves next to the flags, sounding victory, whereupon the French were disheartened, and all our men came at once through the gate, which had been opened wide for them, going into the French barracks and leaving no one alive. End quote. Eugene Lyon describes the events like this. Quote, as the Frenchmen poured out of their lodging and their night clothing, they were cut down. 132 were killed within the fort in what, by all accounts, must have been a confused, violent scene. A French eyewitness described the slaughter, and then Lyon quotes this witness, They made a pretty butchery of it, except for a small enough number, among which were the dependent, three drummers, and four trumpeters and then back to Lyon himself. Forty-five men climbed the stockade and escaped into the woods, or plunged into the river in an attempt to reach the French vessels anchored near the fort. Among them were René de Laudonnier himself. Pedro Menendez, who entered the fort after the first wave of attackers, called out to his men to spare the women and children huddled within the huts. About fifty were granted their lives. End quote. According to Solis, other than the women and children, Menendez only spared two Frenchmen, who at least claimed to be Catholic. The killing took several hours because Menendez's men, for the most part, only used blades and blunt instruments to do the killing. So the victims were bludgeoned and or stabbed to death in most cases in order for the Spaniards to conserve their scarce gunpowder. This massacre at Fort Caroline was the first massacre of white Europeans by white Europeans in territory that would later become part of the United States. Menendez's men thoroughly searched the fort itself, as well as all the buildings that were near it, for supplies. And among the goodies that the Spanish found in and around the fort were a small number of bronze cannon, 
significant amounts of flour and wine, and some livestock, as well as a few small boats. They also discovered Ribot's official papers, including his orders, which said that after reinforcing France's grip on Florida, he was going to try to attempt to attack the Spanish Indies. The Spanish also discovered various Protestant paraphernalia and books, and Eugene Lyon describes this as follows, quote, These gave the Spaniards deep disquiet, as did the presence of the heretic women and children. Menendez prepared to send the French dependents away as soon as possible. End quote. Menendez quickly established contact with the local Indians and began negotiating with them to try to get them to capture and hand over the Frenchmen who'd fled from the fort during the attack. Jacques Ribot, who was Jean Ribot's son, was at the time aboard a ship called the Pearl, which was one of the smaller vessels which was anchored near to the fort. Gonzalo Salas says that Menendez sent a French prisoner with instructions to parley with Jacques Ribot, quote, telling him to go to those ships and inform the man in charge that they could take any ship they wanted of the three, and with God's help, go to France with the women and children who had been spared and the necessary supplies, but without any artillery or ammunition, for he would give them permission to leave, as well as letters of safe conduct that would allow them to go to France safely and be treated well wherever they went. If they chose not to do this, he would sink them and have them beheaded and hanged without leaving anyone alive. The Frenchman came back to the Adelantado with the answer, telling him that the man in charge of those vessels was Jacques Ribot, the oldest son of Jean Ribot. This Frenchman reported that Ribot was claiming that quote, he had committed no crime but had rather done what he was bound to do as a good subject, and that if the Adelantado meant to wage war against him, he would wage war against the Adelantado. End quote. At this point, Menendez began to fire at the Pearl and the other ship near it, but the vessels managed to escape downriver and ultimately did make it out to sea. A few days later, Jacques Ribot's group decided to head back to France without trying to locate and reunite with his father's forces. Meanwhile, just a few days after taking Fort Caroline, Menendez decided to return with most of his forces back down to St. Augustine, because he did not know what had become of Jean Ribot's assault force, and he was concerned that, with the weather now starting to improve, if Ribot's forces were still intact, they might return and attack St. Augustine. So, Menendez left a small garrison of troops to hold Fort Caroline, which the Spanish renamed San Mateo, because it had been taken on St. Matthew's Day. When Menendez returned to St. Augustine, and found that it had not been attacked in his absence, and that Ribot's forces seemed to be nowhere nearby, he then held a big celebratory feast for his victory at Fort Caroline. So, what had happened to Jean Ribot's ships and men, the ones who had gone to attack St. Augustine, and then, while waiting for the tide to change, had ended up chasing the San Paleo instead, and then getting hit by a hurricane. Well, most of his ships had either sunk or been beached in shallow water during the storm, and had been kind of scattered along the coast of Florida south of St. Augustine. Only one of those ships had actually made it successfully through the storm, and it was one of the smaller ones of the contingent, and that ship had hightailed it for the Caribbean. Most of the survivors of Ribot's force managed to find others, and 
Within a few days, there were two groups of them who had managed to coagulate together. This is how Eugene Lyon describes their predicament. Quote, The shipwrecked men found themselves lost upon a hostile shore with their supplies destroyed or damaged in the storm. As Indians appeared along the beaches to raid the scattered survivors, the castaways gathered into two large parties for mutual defense. After some communication, the separate groups began a long trek northward, headed for Fort Caroline. End quote. Of course, they had no idea that anything bad had happened to Fort Caroline. Their assumption is they can still make it safely back to their base and then be okay from that point. Now, around this time, Menendez sent one of the remaining ships he still had to go try to retrieve his flagship, the San Paleo, as well as to try to bring some supplies and additional reinforcements from the Caribbean. Then on September 28th, some Indians came and told Menendez that a large group of Frenchmen were on the southern shore of a small inlet about 18 miles south of St. Augustine. In the words of Gonzalo Solis, quote, Four leagues away, there were many Christians unable to cross an arm of the sea, albeit narrow, an estuary inside a bar, which one must perforce cross to get to St. Augustine. End quote. This little inlet, which is not that wide but is a bit treacherous and has some strong currents and tides, in today's geographical terminology of Florida is located in Flagler County which is the next county south of St. John's County. So St. John's County contains St. Augustine. It's where I used to live until recently. And Flagler County is the county where I currently live. Finding this information out, Menendez took about 40 soldiers, a fairly small contingent, plus a small boat, and brought along a French prisoner with him to act as an interpreter. And they headed down to this inlet. When they got there, he found the Frenchmen where the Indians had said they were, on the far side of the inlet, the southern shore of it. Menendez quickly realized that there were way more Frenchmen down at the inlet than he had Spanish forces with him, so he did his best to use terrain and vegetation to kind of make it seem like he had more Spanish forces with him than he really did. When the French sighted Menendez's men, they sent one man to swim across the inlet to come start to parlay. So, you know, probably the strongest swimmer of the group who was confident he could make it across. One of the first things Menendez asked this man was what religion the group were. And according to Sullis, the man said, quote, they were all Lutherans of the new religion, end quote. The man who had swum across then asked if some of the French leaders could get a truce and a boat to bring them over to parlay with Menendez directly, and this was done. In the words of Solace, quote, The Adelantado received them very well, with about ten of his men, and ordered the rest to stay back among some bushes where they could all be seen, so the French would think there were more men. End quote. Again, he's keeping up this illusion that he's got a lot more Spanish forces with him than he really does. These French leaders asked for safe passage and for assistance to get back to Fort Caroline. Again, they had no idea what had happened to the fort, that the Spanish had actually taken it. Menendez then told them about the taking of the fort and that he'd killed virtually everybody at it except for women and children. Menendez even showed them some of the things that he had taken from the fort, and he had the two French Catholics that he had spared also brought up to prove his story. While they were waiting for these guys to be brought up, Menendez fed the French leaders. 
And when the Catholics arrived, the leader said that they believed Menendez's story about the fort, and they asked for ships and supplies for them to be able to get themselves back to France. Menendez said that he would have been happy to do this if they were Catholic, and if he had extra ships and supplies. But of course, neither of those ifs were actually yeses. Those aren't his exact words, but that's kind of what it amounted to. Solis then says in his account that, quote, The French captain asked the Adelantado to spare their lives and allow them to stay with him until there might be ships bound for France. For the kings of France and Spain were friends and brothers, and there was no war between them. The Adelantado replied that this was true, and that he would help Catholics and friends. However, since they belonged to the new religion, he considered them enemies. He had a war of blood and fire with them, and he would wage it with all cruelty against those he found on that sea or land where he was viceroy and captain general for his king. He had come to implant the holy gospel in that land so that the Indians might be enlightened and live in the knowledge of the holy Catholic faith of Jesus Christ our Lord, as preached and practiced by the Church of Rome. And if they chose to surrender their weapons and flags, placing themselves at his mercy, he might do with them as God wished. They could do so. Otherwise, they should do as they pleased, for he would not come to any other truce or agreement with them. End quote. Menendez then told the French leaders that they had two hours to decide what they were going to do, and then he returned to his men, told them what had transpired, and waited. After two hours, he reconvened with the French leaders, who at that point offered Menendez a bribe of 50,000 ducats if he would spare their lives. Solis describes Menendez's response to this as follows, quote, The Adelantado replied that, even though he was a poor soldier, he did not want to do such a weak thing, so as not to be branded as greedy. That whenever he chose to be liberal and merciful, he would be so, without self-interest. End quote. The French leaders then went back to confer with the rest of their men for another half hour, and finally came back and announced that they would, in fact, simply surrender their weapons and flags, and just throw themselves upon Menendez's mercy. Eugene Lyons says this about the predicament faced by this group of Frenchmen, and why they ended up making the decision they did. Quote, As a practical matter, the options open to the French were few and poor. If they turned away to the southward, they could only expect starvation, death, or captivity at the hands of the Indians. The friendly base to which they were marching was now occupied by their enemy. They chose to surrender and were ferried across the inlet in small parties. End quote. So Menendez had with him some sort of a small boat. I'm not sure if it was a canoe or like a little kind of rowboat dinghy type thing. So much too small to bring over a large group of Frenchmen in one shot. So what Menendez did was he had some of his men get in whatever little boat they had and begin ferrying the French across in groups of 10. So, you know, whatever the boat was that they had, it's big enough to hold 10 passengers plus, you know, at least a few Spanish soldiers who are manning the boat and guarding the men who are surrendering. Solis then says that Menendez told the French leaders who, you know, were already there on that side of the inlet and thus were, in essence, the first to surrender. He told them, quote, Gentlemen, I have but a few inexperienced soldiers, and there are many of you. 
Walking unbound, it would be easy for you to take revenge on us for the people we killed when we captured the fort. Therefore, it is necessary that you march with your hands tied behind your back to my camp, eight leagues from here. Solus said that they agreed to this, and that the leaders' hands were then tied behind their backs, in a spot, though, where the men who were in the process of being ferried over group by group couldn't see that their leaders were being bound up. And then, as each group of ten more Frenchmen arrived, they were initially given some food and drink, kind of, you know, treated in what seemed like a a friendly sort of a way, while they could still be seen by the other Frenchmen waiting across the inlet. But then, after this, they were moved out of view from the inlet, and they were bound too. This was done until all of the Frenchmen had been brought over taken out of sight of the inlet and bound, so that by the time each group was bound and realized that they had way more men in the spot than the Spanish did, it was too late. They were already disarmed and tied up. Once all the Frenchmen had been ferried across and bound up, according to Sullis, quote, the Adelantado asked if any among them were Catholics who wanted to make a confession, end quote. Out of the group, who probably numbered around 200, though we have some conflicting exact numbers of how many there were. Out of this group of Frenchmen, Solace says that eight claimed to be Catholic. And Solace says that in regard to those eight, Menendez, quote, took them out of there and placed them in the boat to be taken by river to St. Augustine. The others replied that they belonged to the new religion, that they considered themselves to be very good Christians, and that they had no other creed but this one, end quote. And then, with each of these groups of remaining Protestants, in the words of Solis, Menendez, quote, ordered them to march. He told one of his captains, named Juan de San Vicente, to march them in the vanguard until he came to a sandy stretch at a distance of a crossbow shot that they needed to cross in order to get to the port of St. Augustine. There he would find a line that the Adelantado would draw with a short lance he carried in his hand, where he meaning Captain San Vicente, should kill them all. He ordered the one in the rear guard to do the same, and this was done like this, leaving all the French dead. Menendez got back to St. Augustine that night toward dawn, for the sun had already set when those men died. End quote. Pretty ruthless. And remember, this account is coming from Solus, who was Menendez's lieutenant and kinsman. So this is a guy who's putting a positive spin on things as far as he's concerned as he's writing this account. So clearly Solus doesn't seem to have had any qualms about what Menendez had done in slaughtering all the French, except for a handful of Catholics at the inlet. Jeffrey Lyons says that a bit more than just the eight Catholics were spared. He says that Menendez spared, quote, the French pilot four carpenters and caulkers, and twelve Breton sailors from the group of bound men, end quote. So, an additional 17 from the Protestants. And there's been some historical controversy ever since about what Menendez actually may or may not have led the Frenchmen to believe in the negotiations prior to the killing. In a footnote in his book, The Enterprise of Florida, Eugene Lyon addresses this as follows, quote, I will not attempt to render judgment upon the vexed question of good faith of Pedro Menendez de Avales in the episodes at the inlet. 
Rumor that he had, in fact, offered the men their lives and then had them killed in contravention of his word was transmitted from Madrid by the Sieur de Forqueva, probably mispronouncing that, in letters to the French rulers sent from Segovia on July 5th, 1566. In his own letter to his sovereign, Pedro Menendez states that he obtained the surrender of the French without any specific promise as to treatment, and then simply had them quickly and systematically killed. He evidently neither asked nor expected any further justification of his actions than that dictated by the exigencies of war and supply and felt himself to be fully empowered by royal authority to carry out his action. End quote. Now that said, even in Solace's account that I shared with you, while he does have Menendez making no explicit promises or guarantees prior to the Frenchman's surrender, he does have Menendez, even in his account, acting quite deceptively during the surrender process. Now, not just leading the French to believe there were more Spanish there than there were, which is understandable, right? I mean, you go, you find yourself actually outnumbered by guys that you want to take prisoner. Well, the smartest thing, when it's not really feasible to get reinforcements on the spot quickly, is to somehow pull off the illusion that you've got more forces than you do. So, I mean, that's kind of understandable in, in the situation. but. Clearly, he seems to have said and done at least a few things that were designed to lull the Frenchmen into believing he would spare their lives. Things like not binding anyone up until they're out of sight. Things like when a group is first brought over, they're initially treated very well and given food and all that. Like This, to me, looks like a very deliberate attempt to keep the livestock calm and placid and unsuspecting while you're leading them into the slaughterhouse. Now, once again, the slaughter was carried out primarily with cold steel. Most sources, whether primary or secondary, that talk about this, and many of them cover it very quickly with almost no detail, but a very common phrase is they'll say, they had the French put to the sword or put to the knife, is how they put it. So we can imagine most likely, you know, throat slitting probably is what's mostly going on here. Maybe some running people through with swords, too. After this slaughter, Menendez returned back to St. Augustine, still concerned about Jean Rabot, whom he now knew, based on the things he'd been told by the Frenchmen down at the inlet, he now knew that Rabot was still alive and that he was leading the second contingent of the shipwrecked Frenchmen. At this point, Menendez wrote his first official report to send back to King Philip. He told of his successes thus far, but he also expressed concern over the continued threats, and he asked for backup. He also then wrote about his plans for starting settlements further north, beginning with a settlement at Santa Elena, which today we know as Paris Island, South Carolina, and then also mentioning that he wants to eventually start building fortifications going inland near the foot of the southern Appalachians, alongside the inland waterway that he believed was there. Of course, we know there's no such thing as an inland waterway that goes all the way either to the Pacific Ocean or to the southwest of North America. But again, Menendez believed it did, and obviously if you believe that 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 waterway is there, it would, of course, be super valuable to secure it so that you can ship Spanish silver from Mexico and Latin America out more quickly and safely than shipping it through the Caribbean, where all the Corsairs are constantly lurking. In this report, Menendez also wrote of establishing various types of agriculture and plantations in Florida and of exploiting its timber resources. Then, 
Just a day after returning from the massacre down by the inlet, Menendez received word from Indians that the second group of shipwrecked Frenchmen, the one led by Rabot himself, had arrived down by the exact same inlet where the other group had been found and killed. Menendez again set off, this time with a larger force, about 150 men, and again headed down to this inlet where he arrived on October 11th. Once again, though, his force was outnumbered by the French contingent on the other side of the inlet. According to Solace, there were around 350 Frenchmen in this second group. Solace says that when the French saw the Spanish, they basically began forming up for a fight, but that Menendez had his men simply stop and casually sit down and start eating on their side of the inlet. So they're basically being told, like, yeah, don't act like you're, you're feeling threatened. Don't act like you're about to fight. Just kind of, you know, stop and, and uh, diffuse the situation. And when the French saw this, they also stopped preparing to fight, and instead they put up a flag of truce, and Menendez waved a handkerchief in return. After some shouting back and forth across the inlet, one of the Frenchmen swam across and retrieved a canoe from the Spanish. The Frenchman took this canoe back across, and then he returned with a man who said he was Ribot's sergeant major. After some mutual introductions, Menendez told this man that he'd killed most of their comrades in the first group, the ones they'd found previously, and he even showed this man some of the bodies from the previous slaughter, which were still nearby. However, when Menendez was telling this man of this slaughter, he claimed that these men had been killed because they had, in the words of Solis, summing up Menendez's statement, quote, not behaved well, end quote, whatever that meant. Now, it's interesting because Solis's account regarding the first slaughter never mentions the men who were being taken captive misbehaving once they surrendered. So, Again, Menendez, if Solis is being accurate where he says Menendez claims these men were all killed because they had not behaved well, Menendez is acting in a very sly, deceptive way. After these revelations, Menendez agreed to allow Ribot and the other leaders of the group to come across to personally talk with him. So, a total of nine men were brought across, whom Solis says Menendez, quote, treated very well as persons of rank and authority. Menendez gave them food and drink, and Ribot thanked him for the generosity. End quote. This was Ribot and Menendez's first and only face to face meeting. And when I think about it, it always kind of reminds me of the face to face sit down scene between Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in the heist film Heat. These two antagonists constantly working against each other. This is the only time they actually have a sit down face to face meeting. Now, in this meeting, Ribot said he was concerned that the men who'd been killed the day before had been deceived by the Spaniards, and that the Spaniards, among other things, hadn't really taken Fort Caroline, and that Ribot was worried that he and his group might be deceived as well. Menendez then, as before with the previous group, brought up some items from inside the fort, as well as one of the Catholic Frenchmen who'd been captured there. At this, Ribot then said he believed Menendez, that the Spanish had taken Fort Caroline, and, like the leaders of the previous group at the inlet, he asked for transportation and a guarantee of safe passage to get back to France. Menendez turned this down as he had turned down the previous group. 
Ribot went back to his men and then came back to Menendez a few hours later, saying that some of his group wanted to surrender to the Spanish and some did not. Solis writes this of the response, quote, The Adelantado replied that he did not care whether they all came, or only some of them, or none at all, that they were free to do whatever suited them best, end quote. According to Solis, Ribot then offered Menendez a large amount of money in return for passage and safe conduct for him and his men to get back to France. Menendez refused to even answer this, and the French then went back across to their side, and both groups spent the night at the inlet, the Spanish on the north side of it, the French on the south side. In the morning, Solis says, Ribot came back across and gave Menendez, quote, two royal standards and two campaign flags, a sword, a dagger, a very good gilded helmet, a buckler, a pistol, and a seal he carried that the Admiral of France had given him in order to seal the documents and titles he was to confer. End quote. Ribot then said that out of his group of around 350, about 150 wanted to surrender and place themselves at Menendez's mercy there, while the remaining men had left during the night. Ribot said that he would hand over the weapons of the men who wanted to surrender. Menendez again began having the French who were going to surrender brought over in groups of 10. And again, when these men arrived, he took them out of sight of those still on the far side of the inlet and then had them bound. Menendez's men told each group as they were being bound that this was only being done because they would have to stop overnight on their march back to St. Augustine, and they just simply couldn't trust these men to not be tied up while they were, you know, sleeping over the course of the night. Solis then says, quote, When they were all tied up, he asked them if they were Catholics or Lutherans, and if anyone desired to confess. Jean Ribot replied that he and all those who were there were of the new religion, and he began to recite the psalm, Domine Memento Me. When it was over, he said that dust they were, and unto dust they must return, that another twenty or so years were of little account, and that the Adelantado should do with them as he pleased. The Adelantado ordered them to march, as he had done to the others, in the same formation, and toward the same line and commanded the same be done to these, as he had done to the others. He accepted only the fifers, drummers, trumpeters, and four other men who claimed to be Catholics, sixteen men in total. All the rest were put to the knife. That night, he returned to St. Augustine, where some people believed he had been cruel, and others thought he had acted as a very good captain. End quote. Now, with both of these massacres at this inlet, Sources are a little bit hazy and often contradictory with each other regarding the exact details and numbers of those killed and the numbers and characteristics of those who were spared. But in both cases, the overwhelming majority of the French who surrendered at the inlet were simply systematically slaughtered in cold blood, totaling certainly over 200 men combining both of the massacres at the inlet. Keep in mind, too, as we covered, that Menendez had had almost everyone but the women and children and a couple of men at Fort Caroline killed as well, and that probably most of those who were killed at Fort Caroline had not been killed in the heat of battle during the very brief fighting that took place during the storming of the fort, but instead in its aftermath. 
And when you put all this together, it's likely that Menendez ordered the cold-blooded killing of something well over 300 French Huguenot men in Florida in September and October of 1565. Menendez's defenders and apologists later said that the Spanish really needed to wipe out the Huguenots because if they didn't, the Huguenots who outnumbered them might try to wipe them out. And that even if they never did such a thing, if they took all of the Huguenots who'd surrendered alive as prisoners, they themselves, the Spaniards, might still have ended up in big trouble because they likely would have quickly run short on supplies if they had tried to feed all these Huguenot prisoners until such time as they could be sent back to France. Menendez's defenders even, according to Solace, said, many of them, that they were glad that most of the French who surrendered were not Catholic for this very reason, meaning that because most of the French who surrendered weren't Catholic, that meant the Spanish were not obligated to take them alive as prisoners and therefore would avoid the risk of running low on supplies by having to feed all these prisoners. Now, an interesting question that I think inevitably occurs to the person who's learning this story is, what would it have been like if the shoe had been on the other foot? In other words, if things like the weather and decision-making and those sorts of things had gone a little more in the favor of the Huguenots as opposed to the Spanish, and if the Huguenots had had the upper hand in these encounters, would the Huguenots have massacred the Spanish in the same cold-blooded fashion if the situation had been reversed? And I think if you're being honest about the situation, I don't think there's really any way to know the answer to that with absolute certainty. Again, as so often happens, we're back to the fact that history, you know, the term social science is a misleading one for history, as it is for many other disciplines that are often considered social sciences as well, because it's not like a hard science like physics where you can run controlled experiments to change one or two variables and see how things play out differently. And the thing is, people ever since have often played to their own group identity and preference. So, for example, people who are Spanish and or Catholic will often say, well, you know, the French would have done the same thing if the situation had been reversed. In other words, that Menendez and the Spanish Catholics were not any more cruel than the Protestants. And of course, Protestants ever since would be more likely to say, oh, no, 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 this is just, you know, the ex exceptional cruelty, the so-called black legend or black myth, right, that the Spanish are just, you know, more cruel than the other Europeans, etc. And that if the, the Protestants had captured the Spanish, they would have treated them with much more, you know, humanity and wouldn't have just slaughtered most of them. And the reality is that when you look at the wars between Protestants and Catholics in the 16th and 17th centuries, you're really being dishonest if you want to act like either side is way better or way worse than the other when it comes to things like conduct during conflict. The reality is that in all those conflicts, both sides, Protestants and Catholics, proved themselves very, very willing and capable of carrying out things like mass murders and atrocities against the other side. And in fact, in the Thirty Years' War in particular in the 17th century, things are going to get way more vicious and nasty in Europe than anything Menendez was doing to the Huguenots or that the Huguenots may potentially have done to Menendez's men in Florida in the 16th century. I mean, to be fair, everything 
that we have as far as evidence indicates that in most cases, Menendez did have people slaughtered relatively quickly. You know, just running them through with a sword or slitting their throat. He wasn't burning them at the stake. He wasn't, you know, slowly torturing them to death or anything. For what that's worth, I guess, you know, by the standards of 16th and 17th century religious wars, that's relatively humane. So on the one hand, I don't know of any compelling reason to assume that the Huguenots would have treated the Spanish better if things had been reversed. But there is, I suppose, again, to be fair, at least the possibility for individual choices of leaders in the moment to be different. And perhaps if Ribot had been in Menendez's shoes at that inlet, he might have personally felt more merciful towards the Spanish than Menendez felt in the real event toward the Huguenots. But I just don't know of any really solid evidence, one way or the other, that gives us any solid indication, any real insight into Ribot's head that indicates strongly one way or the other how he would have handled that situation if things had been reversed. And so to me, it just seems like unless there's some significant piece of evidence that exists that strongly shows which way Rabot likely would have decided, there's probably at least a 50% chance that he would have treated the Spanish not any better to how Menendez treated the Huguenots, and for the same reasons, because of a combination of religious animosity and just a ruthless pragmatism when it comes to things like conserving your supplies. The idea that if you take hundreds and hundreds of prisoners, you're already in a situation where supplies may run very tight in the coming months, and that if you take in hundreds of prisoners, that's a real problem. And so, I'm not saying there's no case to be made that kind of quickly slaughtering these people is better than taking them as prisoners, and then perhaps in order to keep your own people alive, ending up having to basically starve these people to death while they're in your custody. Well, anyway, after returning to St. Augustine from this second massacre at the inlet, Pedro Menendez sent a message to King Philip telling him the good news that he'd killed Rabot and wiped out most of the French who had been in Florida. He still had no word about what had happened to his flagship, the San Paleo, though. In fact, what had happened to it is very interesting. Some of the heretic prisoners who'd been on board it had successfully mutinied and taken over the ship and sailed it back to Europe, although... It had then gone down somewhere off the coast of Denmark. The loss of this big, expensive ship was a massive blow to Menendez's personal portfolio. And perhaps this maybe is a minor case of karma. Who knows? Now Menendez had to wrap up what was left of the French, the ones who had been at the inlet and who had fled during the night, before he could get down to the business of exploring Florida more and trying to colonize it more heavily. So, in late October, Menendez got word from Indians that the remaining French survivors in Florida, the ones from Rabot's group who had chosen to not surrender and had left, that these guys had built themselves a fort down by Cape Canaveral. So, Menendez left on Halloween with an amphibious force, consisting of about 100 men on board a few of his smaller ships, and then another 150 men whom Menendez was personally leading who marched down on land. Several days later, they arrived at Cape Canaveral to find the French had built themselves a basic earthworks-type fort, and that they had armed this fort with some cannon that they had taken from one of their wrecked ships. And then also, they were in the process of trying to build themselves a new ship. 
This time, sources specify that Menendez did explicitly offer this group safety if they would surrender. And probably he was willing to make more generous offers because these guys had a fort and he didn't want to have to try and storm the fort. Whereas the Frenchmen down at the inlet, you know, Rabot's group and the group before them, they had been just kind of out in the open without any strong defenses set up. Now, the majority of the Frenchmen at this little inlet, about 75 of them, did in fact surrender. The Spaniards then destroyed their fort and the ship that they had been building and then buried their cannon. And then, with their prisoners, which they kept their promise and did not slaughter on the spot this time, Menendez's group continued marching south because they figured, well, we're already down here. Let's explore a little bit into this, what was largely unknown to the Spanish, region of kind of southeastern peninsular Florida. They discovered some new geography, including the body of water that would later become known as Indian River, and they also made contact with some Indians who were previously unknown to them, and managed to kind of give goodies and impress these Indians enough to get them to make some promises of fealty to the King of Spain. These Indians, by the way, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name of their tribe. It's spelled simply A-I-S, so I don't know if you say it Ace or Ice or Ais or who knows, but... Menendez, you know, was pretty successful, at least for the time being, at kind of getting good relationships going with them. He then had some of his men begin building a fort near the main Ais village, and then he took two of his boats, plus about 50 of his own men and 20 of the French prisoners, and set off for Havana to get reinforcements and supplies and to check to see if there were any new directives that had arrived, any new messages from Spain. Eugene Lyon writes that at this point, quote, For the Adelantado, the first phase of the conquest of Florida had ended. End quote. So the main European threat had been extirpated, and now it was a matter of exploring the new area, trying to make positive contact with the natives, and get them at least to some degree under Spanish influence and control hopefully get the process of converting them underway, and also get the process of expanding outward from St. Augustine into some of those other regions of La Florida going. And while Menendez had been overall very successful in most regards during this first phase of the conquest of La Florida, the colonization of it would never go quite as well or be as successful or profitable as he had hoped it would be. While Menendez clearly did gain some profit and power from his conquest of Florida, it just never came close to what he really had hoped and dreamed he might get, which was something more like the fabulous rewards and wealth that Cortez had gotten from conquering Mexico. But the problem was, while Menendez was a fairly effective and successful conquistador at getting his mission accomplished, Florida just had nowhere near the wealth and resources and value that a place like Central Mexico had. It was a place where the environment in many ways was more difficult and problematic, and yet where the natural resources just simply weren't as abundant or readily obtainable. During the centuries that Florida existed under the Spanish flag, it was never much more than an economically unprofitable backwater outpost, whose only real continued reason for existence as a Spanish colony was just its proximity to trade routes running out of more profitable colonies, and the desire on the part of Spain's rulers to hold it simply to prevent anyone else from being able to take it over. After he eliminated the French presence in Florida, Menendez did explore around the area 
a fair amount, including making contact with most of the original native tribes of Florida, including the powerful and interesting Calusa Indians, who lived on the southwestern coast of the peninsula, and who, by the way, if you don't know, were the subject of a DHP episode I did a while back. During these explorations, too, Menendez did resume trying to look into what had become of his disappeared son, but he never found any real answers. The next year after establishing control of Florida, Menendez did found a small settlement up at Santa Elena, again, Paris Island, South Carolina, but this settlement never really thrived, and the Spanish actually abandoned it only 21 years later. And the fact that they had abandoned this opened the way for the British to eventually start colonizing the area we know as South Carolina in the next century. But even though he was successful in establishing St. Augustine and in wiping out French presence in Florida, Menendez accomplished really in a lot of ways none of his other big grand goals of major Spanish settlement in the area, of taking over the entire southeastern quadrant of North America, of finding an inland waterway to the southwest or to the Pacific, because of course it didn't exist. And he also never really succeeded, nor did his successors, in converting the natives in Florida to Catholicism in any large numbers, or in establishing any viable and profitable plantations in Florida. Less than a decade after his conquest of Florida, Menendez died in Spain in 1574. A successful, but not wildly successful, conquistador. Unlike Ponce de Leon, who, despite being way less successful, became a romanticized figure in the popular mind, despite there being almost no historical basis for a lot of this mythology, Pedro Menendez de Aviles has just not been romanticized. And while there still are plenty of things named after him in northeastern Florida, including a high school in St. Augustine, very few people in the area know a whole lot about him at all. At most, they might know that he founded St. Augustine but rarely do they fully comprehend that in the process of founding Spanish Florida, this guy ordered multiple cold-blooded mass executions of rival European colonists. By 1585, 20 years after its founding, St. Augustine, which was the capital of Spanish Florida and by far the largest Spanish settlement, still had less than 300 people in it. And it was a very, very minor outpost in the Spanish Empire, nowhere near as wealthy or important as places like Havana or Mexico City. In fact, Spanish imperial rule in Florida was largely paid for, not by any wealth coming out of Florida, but by an imperial transfer subsidy called the Situado, which was decreed by King Philip in 1570 to subsidize the Spanish government in Florida. Florida's situado was paid by Mexico, and the justification for this was arguably the main function Florida was performing was protecting trade going to and from Mexico. This meant that basically Florida was kept viable as a Spanish colony, almost entirely through basically imperial welfare payments, transfers to subsidize Florida at the expense of a much more important and valuable colony. Still, it's interesting to think about that the entire colonial history of North America may have played out quite a bit differently if it had been French Huguenots rather than Spanish Catholics who had succeeded in establishing a lasting 
control and influence in Florida. And you always get into sort of these butterfly effect questions, right? If you change one thing, and again, you can never know because you can't carry out controlled experiments, but if you could change one significant variable in an important historical event, how many ripples does that cause, right? Does that butterfly flapping its wings differently in Tokyo cause different weather on the other side of the planet or whatever? We can never know for sure how differently things would have played out over the next few centuries if the Huguenots beat the Spanish in Florida. But here are some things to think about. Considering that Spain was kind of at or near the peak of its power in the late 16th century when this was all happening in Florida, and that it began a long, slow decline in relative power thereafter, this provided a great opportunity for the rising British Empire in the 17th and 18th centuries to establish control and a much bigger presence in places like South Carolina and eventually Georgia. Places which, in the original Spanish plans for the colonization of North America, were supposed to have been included in La Florida. Meanwhile, despite their loss in Florida, the French also peaked in relative imperial power a bit later. And had they established a colony in Florida in the 16th century, they might have provided more of a real challenge to the British in the area in the 17th and 18th centuries, because it's possible at least that France might have put more boots on the ground in Florida than Spain did over the next few centuries. And that if this had taken place, all of the British and French wars against each other in America coming up, culminating in the Seven Years' War, and even the American Revolution, may have gone very differently if, in addition to Canada and Louisiana, it was the French rather than the much weaker Spanish who held Florida during that time. Perhaps the French would have achieved more than the Spanish did in Florida in terms of populating it and converting the natives. And that also might have put American history on an alternate path. Then again, considering that European diseases wiped out most of Florida's original natives within not much more than a century of Europeans arriving there, Florida's natives might have fared just as badly, regardless of whether they were catching the killer germs from Spanish Catholics or French Huguenots. It's interesting to speculate on how all these variables would have altered things, but, of course... I'm sure I sound like a broken record at this point, but it's important to keep in mind, in the so-called social sciences, unlike in physics or something, it's just impossible to run controlled experiments to know with certainty what would happen if you change a variable. As for the inlet itself, where Menendez ordered the two cold-blooded massacres of Huguenot shipwreck survivors, that inlet I described at the beginning of this episode, it became known thereafter as Matanzas which translates roughly from the Spanish as place of the slaughter. The Spanish would later build a small fort there as an outpost guarding the way to St. Augustine, and they would name the Fort Matanzas as well. Today you can visit this. It's called Fort Matanzas National Monument. And there are various other landmarks and things named Matanzas in northeastern Florida, including some roads and things, and also a high school in the city of Palm Coast. And I always wonder... How many of the people who live and work around these things named Matanzas, how many of them have any clue about any of this history that I've just shared with you in this episode? For example, how many people who attend or have children who attend Matanzas High School know that it's named after mass murder? My guess is, damned few.
Thanks for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. If you like what you heard, there are many ways you can help the show. One of the most important, of course, is to spread the word about the show to others that you think might appreciate it to help grow the audience. Another huge way is to help out the show financially in some way. There are many ways you can do this. You can make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Or one of the best ways is to sign up to make a recurring contribution to the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon or Subscribestar. If you sign up for just $5 per month via either Patreon or Subscribestar, you'll get access to exclusive bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes that are available nowhere else. And you'll also get access to vintage DHP episodes, which are the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to GenPop, the general population. You will also get ad-free versions of regular DHP episodes as they come out. And lastly, for that same contribution, you will also have the option to join the private Facebook group, the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. Another great way you can help out the show at no additional cost to you is to do your Amazon shopping through any of my Amazon affiliate links that are found on my website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And if you go through those affiliate links to get to Amazon, anything you purchase will at no additional cost to you, give me a small commission. This is another thing that helps me with things like keeping the lights on for the Dangerous History Podcast, purchasing research materials for upcoming episodes, and so forth. I also have an Amazon wish list full of books and things for future research projects, and so another way you can help me out is buy me something off of that. That's really cool. So anyway, I hope you'll consider contributing or supporting to the show in one way or another to help me Keep this thing going and keep this thing constantly growing and improving. This has been another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my utmost to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.